This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Mike Report. I am a humanist Figueredo, and this is episode 261 of the program. Today is Friday, October 9th, and we are less than one month away from the election. But before we get to any news, I want to take some time to thank all of the people that make this show possible. All of our Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members, all of which just signed up for the very first time to support us this week or increased the monthly pledge that they were already giving us. And that includes Bang Duong, Carly Sewell, Daniel Gogwin, Douglas Young, Erica Farrell, Jamie, Kelly Scrimstad, Kyle Rome, Marcy Nelson, Mark Muller, Mustang Joe 86, Omni, Rodney Nelson, This Is Not Pizza, and Valentin Garcia. Thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show and join the independent progressive media revolution, you can do so by going to humanistreport.com support, patreon.com humanistreport, or by clicking join underneath any one of our YouTube videos. This week, we've got a lot to talk about. Trump has COVID-19. We'll discuss the bizarre trail of events that took place after we learned about the president's diagnosis. And also, we'll look at the video that suggests he may in fact be downplaying how sick he really is. And of course, we'd be remiss to not talk about the totally normal reaction his diehard supporters had after learning about his condition. We'll discuss Tucker Carlson's outrage after some people dared to be mean to the president. Additionally, we'll continue our coverage of the 2020 presidential election, including Team Trump's attack on Joe Biden for not having COVID-19. I'm serious. Biden's giant lead in the polls and Trump's decision to hold another stimulus hostage until after the election. Also, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez calls on Tulsi Gabbard to apologize to Ilhan Omar after she signal-boosted a right-wing outlet that smeared Ilhan Omar, and the Supreme Court is already signaling its intent to overturn marriage equality. We'll talk about that, and finally, we closed the week by talking to 2020 congressional candidate from California's 42nd District, Liam O'Meara. That's what we've got on the agenda for today's episode. Hopefully you all will enjoy the program. Let's go ahead and get right to it, starting with the Trump COVID story, which is um, very weird. With Donald Trump's positive COVID-19 diagnosis, you know, my thinking was that, okay, well, at least at a minimum, this is going to pressure him to take COVID-19 more seriously. Because if you have it, if you experience it firsthand, then you are going to know this is no joke. However, that's not the case either, because after announcing via Twitter that he would be leaving Walter Reed Medical Center today, he also took some time to downplay the virus, saying via Twitter, I will be leaving the great Walter Reed Medical Center today at 6.30 p.m. Feeling really good. Don't be afraid of COVID. Don't let it dominate your life. We have developed under the Trump administration some really great drugs and knowledge. I feel better than I did 20 years ago. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, there you have it. If you contract COVID-19, just do what the president did. You know, have a helicopter escort you to a hospital for precautionary purposes just to make sure that you receive the best medical care in the country with some experimental drugs that are probably costly. But, you know, don't be afraid. You could just do what he did. He's downplaying it as he leaves the hospital after contracting COVID-19. 
So there is going to literally be nothing that will get him to take it seriously. Now, a lot of people thought, well, this is karma after saying that this affects virtually nobody. You know, now he's going to realize how serious it is. No, that's not the case. Because even if he felt like death, he's not going to tell us the way he truly feels. And over the weekend, we have been getting mixed messages. How serious is the president's COVID-19 diagnosis? Is he actually doing okay? Is he requiring one or two, you know, um, measures of supplemental oxygen? We just don't know. We're kind of left out in the dark. And a lot of people may be wondering, Mike, why didn't you talk about this over the weekend? And I'll be honest, I was just exhausted um, and admittedly a little bit lazy. Like, dealing with Donald Trump's shenanigans, it really weighs you down. And I mean, I, I would have talked about it if he died, of course. But like, this is something that really, it's shocking to hear that the president got COVID-19. But at the same time, it's not really that shocking because he hasn't been taking it seriously. And it seems like most Americans agree that this is kind of his own fault. So as Justine Coleman of The Hill reports, an ABC News Ipsos poll found that 72% of adults said the president did not take the appropriate precautions when it came to his personal health. The same percentage of people also said Trump did not take the risk of contracting the virus seriously enough. Among Republicans, 43% said Trump didn't take the appropriate precautions nor the risk of catching the virus seriously enough. For Democrats, 94% said he didn't take needed precautions and 95% said he wasn't serious enough about possibly contracting COVID-19. And I agree with most Americans. And I feel like the events over the weekend kind of confirmed that we are living in a simulation, at least to me, because it feels like we're watching a parody of 2020 while experiencing it for the first time. Because this is just, this is bizarre. Like the setups of circumstances, you know, leading to us learning about his COVID-19 diagnosis was extremely strange. And when you have an administration that won't be straight up with the American people, it makes matters even worse. And I can't not mention how insufferable liberals have been throughout this process as well, because Joe Biden decided to suspend all negative advertisements about Donald Trump for whatever reason, because Trump wouldn't do the same thing. Um, on top of that, you have some liberals saying, well, you know, I don't wish the president ill will. In fact, Mr. President, we're praying for you. We're wishing you a speedy recovery because we want you to see yourself lose in a landslide and we can't wait for you to go to jail oh please as if that's ever going to happen and perhaps even more insufferable than smug liberals like rachel maddow who wished him well and said she was praying for him are the republicans who are now clutching their pearls talking about how negative the left has gone you know to donald trump when as these tweets point out ben shapiro in no way has ever held back wishing others harm such as trayvon martin and whatnot so you know, this is just, this whole situation is exhausting. And if you are a normal American, I don't know how you're keeping up. Like, I am forced to keep up with this stuff because this is my job, but this is exhausting. Now, I have to share something with you. So, in case you aren't necessarily sure what's happening to the president, uh, this animation 
that Dr. Oz brought to Fox News definitely will clear things up. I think I, I sent you an animation. If you're able to show it, it might be beneficial here. But the right. virus itself isn't the main culprit oftentimes. The, the virus, you, here you are seeing little virus particles. Those little red things are spike proteins. And they're, they're looking for areas. There they are going into the president's nose. We don't know what had happened. But a couple days before he tested positive, down through his throat, into his lungs, those little virus particles set up shop and begin to cause ir irritation. They attach to the little green receptors, that, like a key opening a door. They slip right in there. They take over the cell and they hijack the cell to release lots of virus. Mm -hmm which you'll see exploding through here. That was really helpful because if he didn't confirm that the virus was in fact going into the president's nose, then we wouldn't have known for sure. You know, the animation itself wasn't sufficient. We definitely needed that commentary from Dr. Oz. Thank you so much, doctor. <laughs> now, we're going to kind of recap what took place, starting with the genesis of this entire event. But all of it has culminated in a dispute with the Trump family, where somehow Trump Jr. is the one who has the most common sense in Trump's inner circle. Yeah, so it started out when we learned on Friday evening that Hope Hicks, senior advisor to the president, tested positive for COVID-19 after going on Air Force One with the president and other individuals within Trump's circle. Now, she reportedly self-quarantined on Air Force One, but still, that wasn't enough because we learned that the president, after taking a test, tested positive for COVID-19. We learned about this at approximately 1 a.m. Eastern Time on Friday, but turns out the president knew that he was positive the day after the debate, and knowing he tested positive for COVID-19, he went to an in-person meeting with donors exposed all of them, more than a dozen people, and he pretended as if everything was peachy keen and there was nothing to worry about. Now, on Saturday, he was escorted to Walter Reed Medical Center via helicopter after we received reports that his condition had worsened. He was being treated with remdesivir and reportedly received supplemental oxygen. The White House then tweeted out, quote-unquote, proof of how well he's doing because he was actually still working in the hospital. As you can see here, he, uh, he was hard at work signing his name on a blank sheet of paper. Then things got even more weird when he was escorted around with his motorcade, uh, all while positive for COVID-19, mind you, uh, because he wanted to wave at all of his sycophants that gathered outside of the hospital. And that, of course, was dangerous because as one physician at Walter Reed Medical Center put it, every single person in the vehicle during that completely unnecessary presidential drive-by just now has to be quarantined for 14 days they might get sick they may die for political theater commanded by trump to put their lives at risk for theater this is insanity and members of the secret service whose lives were put at risk because of donald trump's antics also spoke out but i've already gone ahead of myself because it seems as if we learned that the uh nomination announcement of amy coney barrett that event that seemingly was the super spreader event that led to 12 people at the time I record this video testing positive for COVID-19. That includes, of course, the president himself, his wife, Hope Hicks, Kellyanne Conway, RNC chairwoman, Ronna McDaniel, Senator Mike Lee, Tom Tillis. Uh, we have Chris Christie, who is in Donald Trump's inner circle, who also attended a debate panel on Tuesday evening without a mask on ABC. We have Kayla McEnany, Nick Luna. All of these people have COVID-19. And after we were learning about more and more people within Trump's inner circle catching COVID-19, um, they still decided we're not going to institute a mandatory mask requirement at the White House. It's personal. What? You're leaving that up to personal choice when we don't know how many people were exposed? 
Now, thankfully, they reversed that because it is affecting them personally. So, you know, they quickly learned, okay, a lot of people have it or have been exposed to it. We have to do something to stop the spread and contain it. So we're all wearing masks. So that's actually surprising to me because I didn't think they'd actually budge. Uh, but another weird aspect about this story is that Trump's behavior, as it becomes even more bizarre than it usually is, is actually worrying people in his own family, not just like in his inner circle, but members of the Trump family are getting worried because what he's doing is bizarre. So on Monday, he went on a really long and bizarre tweet storm in all caps, tweeting about why you have to vote for him. And it's gotten to the point where even Trump Jr. wants to stage an intervention, literally. His family is fed up with the tweets and Trump Jr. wants to step in and try to get everyone close to Trump to rein in his behavior. In an article for Vanity Fair, Gabriel Sherman explains Donald Trump's erratic and reckless behavior in the last 24 hours has opened a rift in the Trump family over how to rein in the out-of-control president, according to two Republicans briefed on the family conversations. Sources said Trump Jr. is deeply upset by his father's decision to drive around Walter Reed National Military Medical Center last night with members of the Secret Service while he was infected with COVID-19. Don Jr. thinks Trump is acting crazy, one of the sources told me. The stunt outraged medical experts, including an attending physician at Walter Reed. According to sources, Don Jr. has told friends that he tried lobbying Ivanka Trump, Eric Trump, and Jared Kushner to convince the president that he needs to stop acting unstable. Don Jr. has said he wants to stage an intervention, but Jared and Ivanka keep telling Trump how great he's doing, a source said. Don Jr. is said to be reluctant to confront his father alone. Don said, I'm not going to be the only one to tell him he's acting crazy, the source added. One area where the family seems united is over the president's manic tweeting early Monday morning. After Trump sent out more than a dozen all-caps tweets, the Trump children told people they want Trump to stop. They're all worried. They've tried to get him to stop tweeting, a source close to the family told me. So when members of Trump's own family are concerned that his behavior is more strange than it usually is, you know something is going on. Now, as to the severity of Trump's COVID-19 diagnosis, it's really difficult to say because we're not getting a straight answer from people. Mark Meadows basically admitted to lying and downplaying the severity of, you know, um, his sickness. We, we just don't know. He could still be very sick as he's being released. And he's just like, acting like nothing's a problem, exposing more people. He apparently said he met with veterans um while he was at the hospital was he wearing a mask um do, should they be quarantined now we just don't know there's so many questions that we don't have answers to and all we can do is really just step back and think about how weird this moment is and try to appreciate this because this really is something that we will look back on and even though we now know how weird it is but like when we look back on this this is going to be one of the strangest moments in american history where the president catches a very contagious, deadly virus after months of downplaying it and not taking it seriously and leaving the hospital, he encourages people to not let it control their lives and downplays it more. And he may still be very sick. He may possibly be meeting with more people, exposing them. I mean, what do you even say? This is just so weird. Again, it really feels like we're watching a movie, like a satirical film, you know, about the downfall of the American empire and how stupid it became. 
So that's all that I've got. I'll try to keep you all updated, but you know, this story is uh, changing rapidly and I'm sure it's going to get weirder. I don't know if I'm ready for that, but we better be ready because shit's going to get even more weird. And uh, there's less than a month until the next election. All of this happening before a major election. <sighs> Strange times. As many of you know, Donald Trump has been released from Walter Reed Medical Center after undergoing treatment for COVID-19. And after seeing some video clips that we're going to get to here, um, it's evident to me that he is a lot more sick than uh, he's leading on. And these videos are shocking to me. Like, you can see him visibly in pain, gasping for air. Um, but before we get to that, I do want to share the tweet that he put out before he was discharged. He said, don't be afraid of COVID. Don't let it dominate your life. I feel better than I did 20 years ago. Yeah, we're going to see that that doesn't really seem to be the case. Um, now, first of all, the main thing that I have to point out is that he is currently contagious and he took off his mask. He should not be taking off his mask ever unless you are in your room that only you and Melania share. Keep that mask on because now everyone who you come in contact with is exposed and needs to self-quarantine and you're not going to be able to contain the outbreak that's currently taking place in the White House if you do things like this. So the fact that he's taking off his mask, I mean, he, he, he just doesn't get it. He doesn't understand it. Like he's still downplaying the severity of it after he was just released from being in the hospital and he's still not wearing a mask. It's, it's honestly incredible. And another video that I want to share as he's leaving Walter Reed Medical Center, look at all of the things that like he does, like little things that he's probably not even uh, aware he's doing. He's touching the handlebar. We don't know if he coughed into his hand before he put on his mask. I mean, you're contagious. You are contagious. So you are putting other people at risk now directly because you have the virus. What are you doing? But I mean, this is Donald Trump. He doesn't care about anybody but himself. Now, I want to play a couple of clips that were astonishing to me. So this one, um, this is a little bit of a snippet. It's eight seconds from a longer clip where it looks like Donald Trump is gasping for air. Like, you can see him. He's struggling. Like, the way that he's breathing, he's trying to catch his breath. Looks like he's breathing, you know, in a more shallow way because he, he doesn't have a choice. This is genuinely, like, cause for concern. Like, when he says he feels better than he did in 20 years, when I see this... I don't, I don't believe that at all. Now, this um, video right here, this individual says that it looks as if he's wincing in pain. And you can see it. He is. Like, he is struggling. He is suffering right now. He looks, he looks like shit. Like, this is, this is bad. So, all of this talk of I feel better than I did 20 years ago, him being discharged from the hospital... Um, I don't buy it. And I feel like this is part of the facade that he wants to maintain. Like he wants to always be, you know, this alpha male who's untouchable, who's like this godlike figure in a way. And he's incapable of succumbing to diseases that normal human beings, you know, catch. That's all a facade. Like that fades away when you see him in the wild. And he literally is struggling to exist right now, wincing in pain. 
Now you can argue that maybe I'm looking too much into this. And if you said that, then I would say that that's probably fair. Uh, when we see those two clips, it looks worse when it's isolated. But as you can see here, he was struggling to catch his breath after he came up the stairs. So maybe it was the case that he's not doing that bad, but just going up that set of stairs is what kind of like made him lose his breath. Um, but over time, you can see throughout this video that he's really struggling and he's trying to play it cool. But even knowing that he's trying to play it cool, the fact that he lets it be known that he's gasping for air or looks like he's gasping for air, it shows you how serious this is. Now, we're going to get to a certain portion of the clip, which is uh, what we already isolated before. But you can see he's talking and whatnot. And right here, you know, he seems... Okay, but you can you can just see like in the way that he's acting, his demeanor, he's really trying to play off how horrible he feels. I mean, he probably feels like death. This is a very serious virus. Um, so, you know, he's kind of doing little things here and there, fidgeting with his jacket, probably trying to hide the fact that he's really struggling. Um, this is kind of where we get to that point uh, where we looked at that eight second clip that was shared uh, where he's presumably gasping for air. And then he's posing. So he's he really, really trying to hold it in. I do want to share this. This is Herman Cain's timeline. And I mean, Donald Trump is not out of the woods yet, especially when you look at this. So on June 24th, Herman Cain attended Donald Trump's rally, didn't wear a mask. On the 2nd of July, he tested positive for COVID-19. By the 10th, he said he was improving. By the 15th, his doctors, they seemed like he, they said he was improving as well. They seemed happy. Um, on the 27th, said he's really getting better. And on the 30th, he died. Now, I think that this is a little bit of, of an oversimplification because there were reports that Herman Cain was doing really bad. But Herman Cain was trying to downplay how sick he was as well, because currently that's what the Republican Party is trying to do. They're trying to downplay the severity of COVID-19. In fact, there's a GOP senator who uh, said that the fact that Trump is better shows you that it's not as lethal as uh, we previously thought that it was. But I mean, Trump is not out of the woods yet. Like just because he was released from the hospital, probably to the chagrin of his doctors who are caring for him, it doesn't mean that he's better. Um, and when you see him, especially like that portion where he's just gasping for air right there, uh, wincing in pain, He's not out of the woods yet. Now, I do want to share this video. It came out after we got the footage of him presumably gasping for air. And I say presumably because we don't we don't know. I mean, you can only make a sophisticated guess based on what you see. But I mean, uh, keep in mind that this is just me. I'm no medical expert. I'm not a physician. So when I say it looks like Trump is gasping for air, you know, maybe that's just my perception. But you know, I, I was thinking, okay, maybe he's not as bad. Like, maybe this isn't as severe of a case. The fact that they're giving him supplemental ox oxygen, sure, that is, um, that that tells us that this is something that the doctors are concerned with. But at the same time, if they're allowing him to be discharged or released already, I mean, he's got to be better than uh, we previously thought. But those videos, it's changed my mind on this. Now, this is what he released. You can tell. Uh, he looks I just, better here. I just left Walter Reed Medical Center, and it's really something very special. The doctors, the nurses, the first responders, and I learned so much about coronavirus. And one thing that's for certain, don't let it dominate you. Don't be afraid of it. 
you're going to beat it. We have the best medical equipment. We have the best medicines, all developed recently. And you're going to beat it. I went, I didn't feel so good. And two days ago, I could have left two days ago. Two days ago, I felt great, like better than I have in a long time. I said just recently, better than 20 years ago. Don't let it dominate. Don't let it take over your lives. Don't let that happen. We have the greatest country in the world. We're going back. We're going back to work. We're going to be out front. As your leader, I had to do that. I knew there's danger to it, but I had to do it. I stood out front. I led. Nobody that's a leader would not do what I did. And I know there's a risk, there's a danger, but that's okay. And now I'm better, and maybe I'm immune. I don't know. But don't let it dominate your lives. Get out there. Be careful. We have the best medicines in the world, and it all happened very shortly, and they're all getting approved, and the vaccines are coming momentarily. Thank you very much. And Walter Reed, what a group of people. Thank you very much. So I'm probably reading too much into this, but it kind of felt like he was experiencing shortness of breath as he was talking, but that's probably just me because like when you see something, you know, like his gasping for air, you kind of look for that in everything. So it could just be that like my perception has been skewed because of that video. Uh, but when he says, oh, don't be worried, don't let it dominate your life, you're going to beat it. Like he's assuming that people have access to the best medical care in the world that he got. Like if you are sick with COVID-19, um, that's not necessarily the case. Like I want to show you a tweet that stood out to me uh, from one of my followers. So I responded when Trump downplayed COVID-19 earlier, I said, don't be afraid, folks. If you get infected by COVID, just get a helicopter to escort you to the hospital as a precautionary measure to receive the best health care available in the country, all free of charge. Now, somebody actually responded to that with a quote tweet saying, my mom had to go to three different ERs on four different occasions after testing positive. They didn't accept her until the fourth time when she was literally gasping for air and going unconscious from hypoxia. Yeah, so not everyone is Donald Trump. Not everyone is the president of the United States. Not everyone is going to get access to a team of physicians who are working around the clock to make sure that you survive this. So the fact that he is downplaying it after surviving it, it's just, it, it's incredibly irresponsible. And for him to make it seem as if everyone is going to be fine, He's basically implying that you should pretend like it's normal. No, it's not normal. These are not normal times. Not everyone has health care. Even if they have health insurance, they might still get a bill. We've seen the stories. But I mean, what's going to happen is you end up going out there. You expose yourself because you see the president. He got COVID-19 and he's fine. So you go and get it yourself because you think, if he did it and he's fine, then I, I'll probably be fine too. This is the president, so I trust him. Like, these, this is the way that people think. These are his supporters. So, for him to do this, it's incredibly irresponsible. But the fact that, like, he's lying to us about how serious this is. Again, he was going up a flight of stairs, but when you see him gasping for air and presumably wincing in pain while he breathes, which is something that you'd expect from someone diagnosed with COVID-19... It tells us he's trying to hide how ill he really is. And I mean, maybe he would have stayed in the hospital longer if he didn't have such a huge ego, but he doesn't want anyone to think he's ever capable of, you know, getting this sick. He, he's just, he's this macho man and 
He's always okay. He's always fine no matter what. But I mean, these videos are uncomfortable to watch where he genuinely looks like he is in pain. So, you know, this tells me that he's definitely not out of the woods yet. And um, if he was smart, he would have stayed at the hospital, especially because it's not going to hurt you to do that. Like, you don't have to worry about a bill. You have a huge team of doctors trying to cure you. You have nothing to lose. But his ego is getting in the way of his own health and safety, which is just astonishing to me. Because even if you're narcissistic, you'd think that you'd at least have this instinct to, you know, at least, I don't know, self-preservation. But his ego overrides everything, including his own physical health. So it's just crazy to me that the president is this sick and um, he's not only pretending to be normal, but trying to get everyone else to act like everything is normal as well. It's crazy. Donald Trump's positive COVID-19 diagnosis has led to his supporters reacting in a way that is, it's predictable if you accept that this is a cult. And there is a line between being worried about someone who you support and admire and just outright fanaticism. And we see Trump supporters cross into fanatical territory. Case in point. Bless our president. I will die for him. I will die for that man happily. I will die for him. Anybody want to mess with him? You mess with me first. He is a hero, that man. They're nuts. This is not normal behavior. This is not a group of people who are loyal to Donald Trump because of any policy. This isn't about policy to them. This is about personality. They worship the person Donald Trump and what he represents, not what he is doing to them, the way that he's impacting them in a concrete material way. So this behavior is completely bizarre. And that's why I say this is a cult. When I say that MAGA chuds are part of a cult, I'm not saying that as an insult. I'm saying that because it is a matter of fact that what we see from them is very cult-like behavior. And that's not to say that all Trump supporters are cultists. But there is a large subset of the population that worship him on a level that almost seems religious. Now, outside of Walter Reed Medical Center, when he was staying there, uh, were hundreds, if not thousands, of Trump supporters with balloons for the president. They had signs that said, get well. Uh, they had signs saying that they were praying for him, just letting him know that they are there for him. And then on top of that, you had cars drive by with large Trump flags and, uh, you know, they were honking and the crowd loved it. On top of that, uh, they were blasting Staying Alive by the Bee Gees, which I can't play due to copyright issues. But uh, there were a lot of Trump cultists that basically showed up to express their undying love. And in the process of expressing said undying love, you can see a lot of them were not wearing masks. Now, as Tina Wynn of Politico explains, by Sunday afternoon, hundreds of people had congregated outside the hospital. They handed out water and candy and stacks of pizza the Trump campaign sent over. They flew every brand of MAGA flag in the sky. The most devoted carried 20-foot pipes with four flags apiece mounted on them, marching them up and down the sidewalks. YMCA and Proud to be an American, both Trump rally staples, blared on repeat on boomboxes and generator-powered amps. MAGA country had gathered to 
celebrate and pray for its leader, an impromptu festival meets vigil for its venerated living saint. As the crowd grew larger and louder on Sunday, police put up barricades trying to contain the crowds from spilling into the streets. Ad hoc caravans drove up and down, honking their horns in jubilant support. Social distancing seemed like a distant concern, secondary only to the camaraderie and joy of supporting their convalescent leader, often maskless, often yelling over the din of cars into the ears of their newfound friends. Tamara, a nurse from North Carolina in a star-spangled MAGA hat who declined to give her last name, had driven five hours that morning to keep vigil for a short while with her teenage daughter and small dog. She had to drive the five hours back home that night so she could make her shift the next morning. Here and there, a strain of religious fervor shot through the crowd. Yeah, no shit. Trump was sent from God, declared one handwritten poster mounted on the fence outside the Naval Center on the Walter Reed complex. QAnon adherents, the mushrooming conspiracy that Trump Trump is on the verge of purging Satan-worshipping pedophiles from government, made their presence known, holding signs with giant cues. On their windshields, some had the secret hashtag WWG1WGA, which stands for the phrase, where we go one, we go all, something of a QAnon motto and pledge. Now, if you find all of this extremely bizarre and cult-like, um, unfortunately, these are probably the more sane, or should I say less deranged, MAGA chuds, because wind continues. Quote, You've never seen him sick. You've never seen him without energy. Brendan Dilly, a self-described MAGA life coach, told his viewers on his radio show Friday, He's not walking around with weak-ass, pussy-fucking genetics. He ain't got those liberal genes. These are like god-tier genetics. Top one percentile genetics. Yeah. Further afield, Trump's most fervent supporters could hardly accept... <laughs> can hardly accept that Trump caught the disease in the first place, with some suggesting the Democrats or perhaps the deep state were somehow to blame. Does anyone else find it odd that no prominent Democrats have had the virus, but the list of Republicans goes on and on? Tweeted Deanne Lorraine, a former congressional candidate who has backed baseless theories from the QAnon conspiracy movement, going on to blast masks as a Democrat-backed lie and questioning whether China had technically made an assassination attempt on the first family. So when you hear some of his supporters talking about how he has God-tier genetics and that this was an assassination attempt by China and that maybe it's a conspiracy because Republicans are catching uh, COVID-19 but Democrats aren't, I mean, one party's taking it seriously and encouraging people to wear masks and wearing them themselves and the other is pretending like it doesn't exist. But I mean, when you see all of this, when you hear people say, oh, he was sent from God, how could you not come to the conclusion that this is a cult of personality? It's not even about politics anymore. This is about Donald Trump, the person, the figure. And I think The Onion basically had the best take on this, tweeting out, Trump supporters fighting over used tissues president tossed from SUV. And even though this is satirical, I mean, does anyone think that they wouldn't do something like this? Like, these people have expressed such a profound level of delusion that it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, Trump were to do something like this and, like, throw one of his tissues out, they would fight over it and try to, like, inhale it and catch the virus because they think that they're catching, like, some of Donald Trump's powers or genes. Like, this is deeply scary because when you get to this level of worship of a political figure, then 
you know, nothing that you say will get through to them. It's just a cult of personality. And whenever he's attacked, if you try to, you know, speak some sort of common sense to them, they only rally around him more. Now, to get a sense of the mindset that we're dealing with here, NBC News reporter Shamari Stone actually talked to some supporters who were rallying outside of Walter Reed. And um, he did ask them something that was on my mind, like, why aren't you guys wearing masks? If the president who you support got COVID-19, wouldn't that make you want to take it more seriously? Their answer is um, not surprising, but it is still depressing, nonetheless. What are your thoughts right now? My thoughts right now is that Trump is in his 70s, you know. He is at risk, but he's taking it like a champ, you know, compared to what a lot of other people would say. So that's my take on the whole issue. And you know, I have to ask the question, why aren't you wearing a mask? Well, I'm young and I'm not at risk for COVID. So with the survival rates that we've seen, um, it's frankly hysteria what we're seeing with COVID. So. Are you ever concerned it could be, you could possibly be asymptomatic and pass it to someone else? Yes, I do have those concerns, but I don't buy into the fear mongering because where I'm at, you know, I'm around other young people, you know, we can power through this, but the fear mongering about COVID needs to stop. Okay, let me get this straight. So you don't want to wear a mask because to do so means you're buying into the fear mongering. But you support Donald Trump. Just two years ago, he was screaming at the top of his lungs about the migrant caravan. Now he's screaming about how Joe Biden will bring socialism to America. Yes, Joe Biden, functionally a Republican, is supposedly uh, posing this socialist threat to America. So you don't buy into the fear mongering, except all of Trump's fear mongering. So it's, you know, selective fear mongering that appeals to you. Fear mongering about, you know, a virus that's highly contagious and very serious, um, you know, you'll only take it seriously insofar as Daddy Trump takes it seriously. I mean, this is a problem with cults of personalities because they they really hold on to every single word that their leader says. So they're not going to do something unless their leader does something. So as long as Donald Trump doesn't take this seriously, then they're not going to take this seriously as well. And this is dangerous because think about this. If Donald Trump were to actually die because of COVID-19, they have put him on such a high pedestal that they wouldn't believe that it's possible. It would have to be some sort of conspiracy to them that the deep state did this or he was given COVID-19 or it was something else. He was poisoned. Like, I don't want to put ideas in their head, but when you've reached that point where you're that delusional, where you have literally deified someone to the point where you believe that they are almost a demigod of sorts and this type of virus can't possibly harm someone who you view as superhuman that is deeply troubling but at the same time you know if he survives then that is going to embolden them and they're going to think that they were right to not take this seriously when in actuality trump's survival is a likelihood only because he has access to the best healthcare in the world which you lack you may have health insurance, but you're not going to get the care that Trump's getting. You're not going to have a team of multiple doctors working around the clock to make sure that you're okay. You're not going to have to crunch the numbers to see what you can and can't afford. You're not going to have to bicker with your insurance company to make sure that they cover what you need to survive this. So Trump surviving is different from other people surviving. He is not representative of the general American population. So when you get to this level of derangement, and cult-like behavior, it's just nothing good will come from it.
You don't want that in politics. We want people who are being objective, who are supporting politicians because they've made an informed decision to do so, because that person's ideology and policy agenda aligns with theirs. But when we see this, where they're saying they'd die for Donald Trump, I mean, it's just, to say the least, it's fucking strange. So Bernie Sanders had a heart attack a little more than a year ago as of today, and as a Bernie Sanders supporter, I will admit that I was definitely worried about him. You know, not just because of what he would be able to do if he were elected president, but as a supporter, I wanted to see him recover. So of course, you know, it hurt to see people online saying that they wanted him to die and to see, you know, for example, Kamala Harris supporters wish death on him. But at the end of the day, did it really bother me that much? Did I lose sleep over it? Did I make a video about it? No, because people are going to say things like that. Online, you are literally going to find every conceivable opinion for every single issue out there. And, you know, you're going to be offended if you look for things to be offended by. So, of course, you know, if you see someone talking badly about someone that you admire, then, you know, check out, take a break from the internet. Um, Tucker Carlson, however, does not have that same philosophy because he was really heartbroken at the fact that some people online were laughing at Trump's diagnosis. However, he wasn't even talking about those people for, you know, uh, most of this segment that we're about to see. What really offended him were people who had the audacity to point out that maybe Trump got COVID-19 because he wasn't taking it seriously, wasn't wearing his mask, wasn't social distancing, was meeting with people indoors. To point that out to Tucker Carlson is uh, deeply, deeply offensive. Now, maybe, you know, I'm mistaken Tucker Carlson for someone else, but isn't he the person that oftentimes complains about the PC police and SJWs? But here he is, getting overly offended, getting up in arms because his feelings were hurt, because people dared to point out the reality that Trump got COVID-19 because of Donald Trump. Across the world tonight, people are praying that we will learn good news about the president's condition. Over at CNN, however, we were told again and again that the president deserved the sickness that he got, and they trotted out the usual hacks to explain why he deserved it. A lot of people have been put in jeopardy by the uh, president's behavior and now we've learned of course this morning that one of those people is the president himself but he just couldn't get over the fact that in his mind the mask equals weakness equals i'm not on top of this virus so perhaps a bit of a shock this morning for americans but not necessarily a surprise it is also the most vivid possible demonstration of the incompetence and the irresponsibility of the administration. In large part, uh, it's his own dereliction is um, partly to blame for this. He chose to go out to rallies. Imagine. He just announced he was infected. He just got to Walter Reed. He deserved it. They didn't wait long. Of course, millions of Americans have been diagnosed with the coronavirus, probably people you know, probably people in your family. We can say that. Hundreds of thousands have died. CNN's expert panelists are saying they all deserved it. They must have. They were careless. They were derelict in their duties. If there was a lesson from the coverage of this, it's a very familiar lesson. The media class is willing to attack the rest of the country if they think it will hurt the president they despise, if they think it will give them more political power. And of course, it wasn't just the media. In fact, the official message of the Democratic Party is that Donald Trump had it coming. 
we all receive that news with great sadness. I always pray for the president's family that they're safe. Uh, I continue to do so more intensified. This is tragic. It's very sad. But it also is something that, that uh, again, uh, going into crowds, uh, unmasked and all the rest, was sort of a, a brazen invitation for something like this to happen. Brazen invitation. He asked for it. He was dressed provocatively. That's what Nancy Pelosi just told you. Many other Democrats are echoing that sentiment. Rick Leventhal has been following this reaction from the Democratic Party. He joins us tonight to explain more. Rick? Hey, Tucker, there are a lot of people wishing the president and first lady well on Twitter, sending thoughts and prayers for a speedy recovery. But no surprise, the haters are not holding back, actually saying they hope the first couple die. And Twitter says it's immediately removing those messages because they violate policy. Here's one from former Obama staffer Zara Rahim, who uh, shared this and then apparently self-deleted a post reading, it's been against my moral identity to tweet this for the past four years, but I hope he dies. Then there's Steve Cox, an independent candidate for California's 39th district, who posted numerous tweets wishing death on the president and then wrote, by quote, I hope they both die. I was talking about Trump and Biden, not Melania. She seems nice. And former Elizabeth Warren staffer Max Berger wrote, Trump has destroyed millions of lives. He deserves none of our sympathy. Some Twitter users have compiled a library of mean tweets wishing the worst on the president, and there are too many of them to count, Tucker. In a statement, Twitter says content that wishes uh, hopes or expresses a desire for death, serious bodily harm, or fatal disease against an individual is against our rules, and Twitter says it will prioritize the removal of content when it has a clear call to action that could cause real-world harm. That's a quote. Meanwhile, the president's tweet announcing he had the virus was his most popular ever, at last count, tallying 1.7 million likes, Tucker. Unbelievable. Rick Leventhal, thank you. Sure. If you find yourself rooting for someone's death, anyone's death, it's time to pause and take stock of how your own soul has rotted. We're all going to die in the end. And trust me, as we do, we're going to regret thinking things like that about other people. We actually debated whether or not to put that on the air tonight. It's so ugly. In general, our... Our view is don't put things on TV that are that ugly. But we felt we should because it is everywhere today. Really, Tucker? Really? You were so offended by that that you debated whether or not you'd air it on television? I mean, I thought that right-wingers were against this sort of PC outrage. Isn't this just political correctness? Aren't you just acting like triggered little snowflakes right now? And what's astonishing to me is that he got the most offended at the most benign aspects of what was said. The media clips that he showed were basically people rightfully pointing out that Trump has put other people's lives in danger because he doesn't take it seriously. He doesn't wear masks. He doesn't take it seriously. That's why he got it. Now, you can say maybe there's this underlying implication that they think he deserves it. But when I hear them say things like that, it seems like they're saying, play stupid games, win stupid prizes, and they'd be correct. As president, you should be setting an example. But Trump was not doing that. Trump didn't just downplay the severity of COVID-19 for months, but he himself did not take it seriously when he has a bunch of comorbidities. Like, it was dangerous for him to catch it, and now he has it, and people are saying, well, look, we were telling you, and Tucker Carlson is getting outraged. Because how dare they point out that Trump 
got this because he wasn't taking it seriously. Well, guess what? You're a really bad populist, Tucker, because 72% of Americans agree that Trump did not take the risk of COVID-19 seriously. So they're not very sympathetic. And you should know this. You should have your finger on the pulse as a so-called populist. But to point that out is offensive to Tucker Carlson. Interesting. Whatever happened to facts don't care about your feelings. I mean, I think it's pretty factual to state it's not surprising that he got the virus because he doesn't take it seriously. But Tucker Carlson is offended. Oh, you poor thing. Poor thing. Now, what I love is that all of a sudden, Tucker Carlson wants us to take COVID-19 seriously. How dare we be so insensitive? 200,000 Americans have died. Yeah, that's what we've been saying, Tucker Carlson. That's why we've been wanting Donald Trump to take it serious, because it is serious. But now you're saying that the left and Democrats and the media aren't taking it seriously when they point out how Donald Trump hasn't taken it seriously? And it's funny that all of a sudden he wants to take it seriously when for months, Tucker Carlson, like the president, has also been downplaying it. Not only did he critique Anthony Fauci, but he downplayed the severity of the virus by citing two quack doctors that used a widely discredited study that they conducted themselves to conclude that the infection rates were lower than the national numbers that were being reported. But because Daddy Trump got COVID-19, now Tucker Carlson wants everyone to take it seriously. How dare you just point out the fact that the president got this because he wasn't taking it seriously. The call. I mean, he's supposed to be the more savvy propagandist, right? The, the more populist member of media. But you can see he's just batting for a team and he'll go to bat for his team. He'll be a hack. He doesn't care. He has no principles. Daddy Trump has COVID-19, so now we have to take it seriously. And what's weird is that he got seemingly the most offended at what Nancy Pelosi said when she stated very clearly she wants him to do better. She's praying for him. But because she said that um, his behavior has been irresponsible, he said that that's so bad, it's comparable to rape apologia. He literally said, oh, maybe he was asking for it because he was dressed provocatively. You're comparing Nancy Pelosi's comments where she wishes the president, president well, but points out that he's been irresponsible to rape Apologia? Tucker Carlson is a fucking moron. And he's not just a moron. He's a snowflake moron. He's a triggered little baby moron to be offended by something that doesn't even matter. But when they actually got to the comments where people said they want the president to die, what does he do? Then he starts celebrating Twitter censorship and becomes the SJW that he often criticizes because the person who he was interviewing said, well, you know, what? we're banning people who um, uh, say anything negative or wish death upon the president. Okay, so you support this. Why weren't you speaking out when Ilhan Omar was receiving death threats? Twitter wasn't banning anyone who was coming after Ilhan Omar after a crowd of Trump supporters at a rally chanted, send her back. But now all of a sudden, when you're offended, you're okay with censorship. You're okay with deplatforming. Only because you're the one who's offended. Your outrage is wholly legitimate and justified. But anyone else's outrage ever 
is bad and they're being snowflakes and they're too politically correct. Of course. Tucker Carlson is a hypocrite of the highest order and I want you all to remember this the next time he does a segment about college students on campuses supposedly being too outraged whenever he claims that the mob and their political correctness is ruining American society. Whenever he brings that up, throw this in his face. Him being a little snowflake baby because people very tepidly criticized the president on the media. I mean, give me a fucking break. This is what I'd like to call an SJW if I've ever seen one, right? He's not a social justice warrior because he doesn't care about social justice, but he's a social injustice warrior. He's the right-wing equivalent to an SJW to where he, you know, can get offended and call for deplatforming and censorship, and that's okay. But if you do that on the left, you're a bad person. Yeah, Tucker Carlson is a fraud, and if you don't see that by now, you're never going to see it because he's given you more than enough to know who he really is. Aaron Perrine is the director for press communications for Donald Trump's re-election campaign, and in an interview with Fox News, she tried to make the case for Donald Trump as to why he should be re-elected, and part of a reason why she thinks he's more qualified than Joe Biden is because he had COVID-19, or I should correct myself, he has COVID-19 currently. And because he's had this experience, that's a good thing. It makes him more capable of dealing with this pandemic than Joe Biden. Now, what she does is basically suggest that Joe Biden is not qualified to be president because he has not had COVID-19. I wish I were making this up because this is politics that you'd see in like some sort of satirical film, but nonetheless, this is real life. This is a real argument that a supposed serious person made on national television. So is that something we should expect with a best case scenario? The president leaves the hospital today, gets back out on the campaign trail. Will we see changed messaging when it comes to the coronavirus and will it move more to a forefront of the president's messaging and key issues? Well, firsthand experience is always going to change how someone relates to something that's been happening. The president has coronavirus right now. He is battling it head on as toughly as only President Trump can. And listen, that of course, that's going to change the way that he the way that uh he, he speaks of it because it'll be a firsthand experience. But, you know, that experience, that experience of not only coronavirus, but being president of the United States, that's why you just see a different tone overall from him. But it's been law and order. He has the firsthand experience of being... Sorry, I'm running out of time. But it's been law and order and it's been the economy. Does this become a key issue and for your campaign? And he's talked about coronavirus as well. He's talked about it all. And listen, he has experience as commander in chief. He has experience as a businessman. He has experience now uh, fighting the coronavirus as an individual. Those firsthand experiences, Joe Biden, he doesn't have those. Wait a second. So she's literally saying that because Joe Biden hasn't had COVID-19, because he hasn't been infected with the virus, he is less qualified than Donald Trump, who has been infected with the virus. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Why would that make Joe Biden less qualified than Donald Trump? Why do you have to experience the virus to know how to legislate properly with regard to containing the virus? That doesn't make any sense at all. And um, apparently the American people aren't with her because 72% of Americans believe Donald Trump contracted COVID-19 because he wasn't taking it seriously. So it doesn't seem as if 
that's going to change anytime soon because as he's being released from the hospital, guess what's happening? He's still downplaying the severity of COVID-19, if you could believe that. Tweeting out, I haven't felt this good in uh, 20 years, or this is the best I've felt in 20 years, something to that effect, saying, don't let COVID-19 affect your life. Basically downplaying it. So if anything, you think that maybe you can make the case that going forward, he's going to be a better leader, at least with regard to the pandemic, because he's experienced how horrible it is firsthand. But no, so you can't even make that case now. He's still horrible. He's still the worst. And the fact that Joe Biden hasn't had COVID-19 doesn't make him less uh, less suited to deal with it. The fact that she made this argument with a straight face is baffling to me. It's not like Joe Biden isn't immune from the virus. He still travels. He's around a lot of people. He could still catch it. But he wears a mask all of the time. The people around him actually take it seriously. And Trump makes fun of him for wearing a mask. So even though it is still likely that Joe Biden could catch it, given how much he travels around the country, I mean, the fact that he hasn't gotten it as someone who is exposed that much potentially, it should show you that at least he knows a little bit more about the minimum steps that you should take as a grown-up to not catch this virus. So the fact that Donald Trump just didn't even take it seriously for himself and he downplayed it for months saying it affects virtually nobody and now for you to say that makes him more qualified because he had it i mean that's just laughable again if he actually changed if having the virus experiencing firsthand how horrible it is made him want to change and actually do better you can make that case you can make that argument and i wouldn't be mocking you for it but because you're saying he had it and that automatically just is inherently a reason why he's better than Joe Biden is just laughable. Donald Trump is not going to take this virus seriously and even getting the virus isn't enough to make him want to take it seriously. He's just not going to take it seriously because that's who he is. Even catching the virus, when you can see videos of him literally gasping for air, that doesn't mean he's going to start taking it seriously because he doesn't want anyone to think that he's that sick because he has an ego. So the fact that this person said this on national television is honestly bonkers to me and she should be ashamed of herself, not necessarily because she did something that is bad, theoretically speaking, but because she's so shameless that she's literally willing to attack Joe Biden because he didn't catch COVID-19. Like, what a stupid thing to say. Last week, we talked about how the first post-debate poll showed that Joe Biden got a substantial bump after he debated Donald Trump because it seemed as if a lot of people thought that Joe Biden outperformed Donald Trump at the debate, not necessarily because Joe Biden himself had a good debate performance, but because Donald Trump was so insufferable, wouldn't stop talking, and presumably turned a lot of people off. So in that first CNBC change research poll that was taken after the debate, he got a huge bump showing that he's leading by 13 points nationally. Now, I said at that time that you can't necessarily take this at face value because this is just one poll and it could be an outlier. You know, the number is more reliable from polls when you look at average polling data. But now we know for sure that was not an outlier because another poll confirms that Joe Biden did in fact get a large post-debate bump. 
And as Richard Luzcombe of The Guardian explains, Donald Trump's beleaguered campaign team woke up to another setback on Sunday as the president began his second full day in the hospital, a new national poll showing their candidate 14 points behind his challenger, Joe Biden, with less than a month until Election Day. The NBC slash Wall Street Journal survey indicating a 53 to 39 percent advantage for the Democratic Party's nominee injected urgency for Trump's advisors already scrambling to find a strategy for the final weeks of the campaign until the 3rd of November. It was becoming clear that Vice President Mike Pence, who has tested negative for coronavirus, and members of Trump's family once they emerge from quarantine, will assume leading roles at virtual then in-person rallies until or unless Trump himself recovers in time to resume campaigning. The NBC poll showing Biden widening his lead over Trump was taken immediately after last Tuesday's tumultuous first presidential debate in Cleveland, at which an argumentative president constantly interrupted both his rival and the moderator, Chris Wallace. Jason Miller, another senior advisor to the Trump campaign, said he had no concerns about Pence traveling and campaigning. I doubt that because Mike Pence has the charisma of a houseplant. So, you don't want Mike Pence to be the one campaigning on your behalf. If you're Donald Trump and you're the star, you want to be front and center. But the fact that he can't be front and center, this is damaging. And when you take into account the fact that the first debate didn't go so well for him, well, we're looking at a pretty disastrous situation. Now, those two polls, the CNBC and now the NBC News ones, these are the only ones that show Joe Biden having that big of a lead. But when you look at other polls, they all do show a post-debate bump. The Hill and Harris Act shows that he got a two-point bump. The same is true for JTN and RMG. Now, this is in addition to the four-point bump that he got, according to CNBC, which shows Biden leading by 13 points overall, and the six-point bump that NBC News and the Wall Street Journal found that he got, uh, you know, in comparison with their last poll. A six-point jump from a credible pollster is really something. Now, there is one poll that shows that Joe Biden actually decreased after the debate by three points. This is from IBD, although this pollster does usually swing to the right most times. That is, most polls favor Republicans slightly. And since this is the only poll showing that Biden actually decreased, I think that we have enough other polls to determine that this is most likely an outlier. Now, of all these polls, Biden's lead nationally is now at 8.5%. That is huge. So at this point in time, it seems like Joe Biden is poised to win the popular vote, perhaps by a larger margin than Hillary Clinton. However, as you all know, winning the popular vote is not enough to win you the presidency. So what you need to do is win where it counts. You need to do well in battleground states. And Joe Biden is, in fact, performing surprisingly well in battleground states. He has a two-point lead over Trump in Florida, a 6.5% lead in Pennsylvania, a 5.2-point lead in Michigan, a 5.5-point lead in Wisconsin, a 1.2% lead in North Carolina even, and a 3.4% lead in Arizona. Now, when it comes to the state of Ohio, a state that a lot of people believe a Republican has to win in order to claim the White House, Joe Biden is leading there by one2 Points. Now, it's a narrow lead, but nonetheless, it still is a lead. In Georgia, Joe Biden is edging out Trump here with a 0.3% lead overall. And even in Iowa, they are neck and neck with Biden leading by half a point on average. Now, in Texas, Trump is leading, but within the margin of error. So even though a Biden victory in Texas is unlikely, you know, it's not out of the realm of possibility since they are within the margin of error of each other. So at this point in time, Joe Biden is looking very likely to win the presidency, win the popular vote, 
and the Electoral College, but there's a caveat. Even though he's currently doing better than Hillary Clinton, that is assuming nothing changes between now and November 3rd. And as we've seen, 2020 is crazy. We've been thrown a ton of curveballs. I mean, just last week, what happened with Trump's tax returns and the debate, that seems like a month ago, right? So the news cycle moves fast and a lot can change. But if everything remains static and Joe Biden maintains this lead, he is, in fact, going to win. Now, there is one more caveat that I want to add. Even though Joe Biden has a pretty sizable lead in some Rust Belt states, such as, you know, 5% in um, Michigan and Wisconsin, that still might not be enough because we have to factor in voter suppression, right? In states where it's really close, like Georgia, and he's just barely edging out Joe Biden, you have to account for voter suppression and not assume that he's going to win there because voter ID laws are a thing in a lot of states. Uh, on top of that, we'll see voter purges, uh, some ballots not actually being counted because there's a signature that doesn't match, for example. And a lot of ballots already have been disqualified because of that. So there's a lot that we're not accounting for. And just looking at these poll numbers and even averaging them out, isn't enough. It doesn't necessarily guarantee a Biden victory. It looks really good for Biden. If I were anyone in this race, I would want to be in Biden's position right now. But there's a lot of other factors that we're not accounting for, which is why I say, you know, it's not a foregone conclusion. Even if it's the case that Joe Biden wins the popular vote, again, that doesn't mean that you're going to win uh, the presidency and take the White House. So you've got to account for these things. Voter suppression is a real issue that disproportionately impacts Democratic Party voters because they happen in communities of color more often than not. You know, polling stations get limited. Voter ID laws get imposed, which hurts people of color disproportionately. So you never know what can happen and you can't assume that a victory is a certainty because it's not. But does it look really good for Joe Biden looking at this snapshot that we have currently? Yes, it does. And with less than 30 days until the election, if you're Team Trump, you're panicking, especially if Mike Pence is supposed to be the face of your campaign because he doesn't have charisma. He doesn't have the appeal or the cult of personality that Donald Trump has. So when you put out someone who isn't your star, that's going to hurt you also. And on top of Trump's performance just overall, he's turning off a lot of people. And even though his his base, like the diehards, the cultists love it, that isn't enough to win an election. So you have to expand your base. And everything that we've learned so far tells us that Trump is not expanding his base. He's losing some of his base. Some people will never abandon him no matter what, because again, it's a cult. But there are individuals who, uh, you know, voted for Donald Trump in certain districts after voting for Obama. And that's something that they're not really accounting for. I think that he believes he can win using the same antics that he used in 2016. But 2020 is an entirely different era in American politics. There are so many different things now, like the economy, this pandemic. I mean, you can't just play the same greatest hits and expect them to land, expect the crowd to love it. You've got to bring out new things. You've got to adapt with changes. And the fact that Trump isn't able to adapt, in fact, he's incapable of adapting given, given everything that we've seen, um, you know, it, it looks really good for Joe Biden. But again, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a guarantee that he's going to win because that's not the case because there are other factors uh, that we have to account for. 
So I'm not sure how many people remember Kim Davis because this was a while ago, but if you don't remember her, allow me to quickly refresh your memory. Kim Davis is the uh, Rowan County clerk from Kentucky who in 2015, after the Supreme Court held that states cannot deny marriage licenses to same-sex couples, she did just that. She broke the law, and as a result of her breaking the law, she went to jail because of it. And now she's being sued because she broke the law, and she's currently trying to get the case against her dismissed. However, lower courts said no, and they allowed the case against her to move forward, and now the Supreme Court has refused to grant her a writ of certiorari, which means that they are not going to hear her case. So basically, um, we're not sure where that's going to go with regard to Kim Davis, but that is uh, not the most important detail. The reason why we're bringing up Kim Davis is because in the Supreme Court's denial of her writ, they said something really alarming about marriage equality and the Obergefell v. Hodges case, which is what, you know, led to her getting arrested and everything to begin with. So this is what CBS News reporter Melissa Quinn says. The Supreme Court on Monday turned away an appeal from Kim Davis, a former Kentucky County clerk who refused to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples under her name because of her religious beliefs, letting stand a lower court ruling allowing a lawsuit filed against her to proceed. The protracted legal battle involving Davis occurred against the backdrop of the Supreme Court's landmark 2015 decision in Ober Birchfeld v. Hodges, in which the court ruled same-sex couples have the right to marry. Although Justice Clarence Thomas agreed with the court's decision not to take up the dispute in a scathing statement joined by Justice Samuel Alito, he criticized the Supreme Court's 2015 decision and said it bypassed the democratic process and left people with religious objections to same-sex marriage in the lurch. Davis may have been one of the first victims of this court's cavalier treatment of religion in its Obergefell decision, but she will not be the last, Thomas wrote. Due to Obergefell, those with sincere really held religious beliefs concerning marriage will find it increasingly difficult to participate in society without running afoul of Obergefell and its effect on other anti-discrimination laws. Thomas said the High Court's 2015 decision, quote, enables courts and governments to brand religious adherents who believe that marriage is between one man and one woman as bigots, making their religious liberty concerns that much easier to dismiss. This petition provides a stark reminder of the consequences of Obergefell, Thomas wrote, by choosing to privilege a novel constitution right over the religious liberty interests explicitly protected in the First Amendment, and by doing so undemocratically, the court has created a problem that only it can fix. Whoa. So I want to repeat that last part of that sentence there. The court has created a problem that only it can fix. So what Thomas is saying is, listen, at the time when we ruled on this case, we had Kennedy on the court, and he was the swing vote, but now Kennedy is not here, and we want to hear this case. And if Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed, we're not just going to have a 5-4 majority against this decision. We're going to have a 6-3 majority, enough comfortably to overturn this decision with ease. Now, I know a lot of people are going to say, well, Mike, the Supreme Court very rarely likes to overturn their own precedent, but let me burst your bubble. The Supreme Court is not some sort of principled judicial body that cares about upholding the sanctity of our Constitution. They don't give a shit. This is a political body. Stop fooling yourself into thinking that they actually care. This is a political body, and they will make political actions if it is something 
that they have the power to do. They've proven time and again, it doesn't matter how far they take us back in history, they will do what they need to do to appease their base. And some of you may say, well, look, Justice Roberts oftentimes sides with the liberals, so he wouldn't let this happen. Except the problem with that thinking is Justice Roberts was in the minority in that case, which means he voted against the legal right to marry for same-sex couples. So, yeah, they can overturn this decision. They don't even need Amy Coney Barrett. But if they get her, then they definitely can overturn this decision. And Clarence Thomas is saying that they want to overturn this decision. We want to revisit this case. Now, you can argue that, you know, maybe even though Justice Roberts, you know, back then he was against same-sex marriage, but as Chief Justice, you know, he has an interest in making sure that the court is legitimate, right? So why would he vote to overturn precedent that's just five years old? Doesn't that make the court look bad if they overturn a landmark case five years later? Doesn't he have an interest in making the court appear as if it's not a political entity? Well, I mean, sure, you can argue that, but it's not like we should be relying on Roberts to do the right thing when repeatedly he has done the wrong thing. And that's why they want to rush through the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett, because that gives them that cushion in the event Roberts does flip to where they can still overturn this precedent from five years ago. Now, as this person points out on Twitter, on the very first day of their new term, they're already saying they want to overturn Obergefell v. Hodges. And as incoming progressive lawmaker from New York, Mondaire Jones put it, due to Justice Kennedy's replacement in 2018, there is now a 5-3 majority on today's Supreme Court that believes my ability to marry who I love is a novel constitutional right that should not exist. Amy Coney Barrett would increase the majority to 6, expand the damn court. And uh, I think he's right. We don't have time to be relitigating these battles. We have same-sex marriage in all 50 states. Why are we going to revisit that and undo it? There's no harm that's being caused. It is overwhelmingly popular. The individuals like Kim Davis, they are the fringe aspects of society. And it doesn't matter even if they were the majority and, you know, they didn't want to see gay people have the right to marry. It doesn't matter. Somebody's religious predispositions doesn't override civil rights or civil liberties and the fact that conservatives think that it does shows you that they're not serious like people like clarence thomas should not be on the supreme court because these are ideologues they're not interpreting the constitution objectively or impartially these are ideologues trying to carry out the republican party's agenda and the quicker that people on the left and liberals realize this that the court is deeply political and stop folding themselves the quicker we're going to realize that we have to fight fire with fire and do things like Mondaire Jones uh, suggested here. Expand the court. Because again, we shouldn't be relitigating these battles. We fought this battle. We won. Why are we going to wage this war again? It's ridiculous. Now, in the event the Supreme Court did decide to rehear same-sex marriage and the constitutionality of it, and they overturned the president that they set in 2015 understand what that would mean for thousands if not millions of gay people across the country that means if they get their health care through their spouse they lose it like that if they're getting social security benefits from their spouse who recently passed away they lose it like that there are more than a thousand federal benefits that go to same-sex couples i mean the devastation would be horrible thousands of lives would be ruined 
if the Supreme Court got their way, if Clarence Thomas got his way and actually overturned the precedent that they just set in 2015. So this is very serious, and we don't have time to be considering the political ramifications about whether or not it's a good idea to back the Supreme Court. We don't have a choice. These are battles that have been fought for for decades, and to just have them overturned like that because there's a Supreme Court uh, majority, a conservative majority on the Supreme Court, it's unacceptable. It's not even a question. So they should absolutely be fearful of a growing court if they choose to fuck around and do something like this. See, the reason why Clarence Thomas is saying this is because he doesn't think that liberals are serious when they kind of flirt with the idea of expanding the court. He knows at the end of the day, they're going to back down, which is why he's saying this, because he doesn't really see any threat from liberals or the left. He doesn't think they'd actually expand the court, and it doesn't matter what they do. So he thinks they could comfortably do whatever they want reverse precedent that they've wanted to reverse, um, take the court in a very bad direction. We're looking at, you know, a Lochner era on steroids if they get their way because they don't care. These justices are not elected, so they don't have to worry about, you know, their election campaigns. They're there forever until they're ready to call it quits or they die. So if they want to do some ghoulish shit like this, there's nothing stopping them, not even the threat of expanding the court because they know that Joe Biden isn't going to do something like that. And as a result, people are going to suffer. We're going to see Obergefell be overturned. We're going to see Roe v. Wade be overturned. And things are going to get worse and worse until they actually are reined in because they know that the Democratic Party is serious about this. But I don't want to take the time to dog on the Democratic Party for not fighting because we don't necessarily know what they will or won't do. The fact that they want to do this shows you what a horrible party the Republicans are. I mean, what are they offering people? I know these are justices, but the party overall, they stand for nothing. They just want to go backwards. Destroy what little progress we've made when it comes to climate change. Roll back civil rights that communities have fought decades for. And that's all that they want to do. Just take us backwards. They are the definition of regressive. And if they get Amy Coney Barrett confirmed... They can do anything they want. Now, COVID-19 has postponed the hearing of Amy Coney Barrett. If you have multiple Republican senators, including two that sit on the Judiciary Committee, not able to do these hearings right away, then, you know, that is going to put a little bit of a damper on their plans. But the problem is they can still confirm Amy Coney Barrett after this election, even if Donald Trump loses this election and Republicans lose the Senate, they can still rush through this confirmation before the new Senate comes to power, before Joe Biden is sworn in in January. So they can do a lot of damage. All they need to do is get Amy Coney Barrett confirmed. And even if she's not confirmed, I mean, they're still in a great position. They can do whatever they want. So if we're not talking about expanding the court, then we are not serious about protecting the most vulnerable people in this country. Because as Mondaire Jones said, you know, expand the damn court. <laughs> That's it. You have to. We don't have a choice. Again, we don't have time to relitigate these battles. We have to move forward and fight the existential threats to humanity, climate change, get healthcare to America. But we can't do that if we keep fucking getting dragged backwards over these battles that have already been fought and won.
So yeah, this is uh, horrifying, and I hope that people understand how important the Supreme Court is. I've got to say, the COVID-stricken version of Donald Trump is even more insufferable than the regular version of Donald Trump because it's almost like he's going out of his way to be more obnoxious because he thinks he can get away with it because people are more sympathetic towards him, but he's just so insufferable. And, you know, it's not just the tweet storms in all caps, but it's also him downplaying the virus while he has it. And now he is effectively throwing a temper tantrum and saying the American people aren't going to get any relief until after the election because I say so. So he tweeted out, Nancy Pelosi is asking for $2.4 trillion to bail out poorly run, high crime Democrat states, money that is in no way related to COVID-19. We made a very generous offer of $1.6 trillion, and as usual, she is not negotiating in good faith. I am rejecting their request and looking to the future of our country. I have instructed my representatives to stop negotiating until after the election, when immediately after I win, we will pass a major stimulus bill that focuses on hardworking Americans and small business. I have asked Mitch McConnell not to delay, but to instead focus full-time on approving my outstanding nominee to the United States Supreme Court, Amy Coney Barrett. Our economy is doing very well. The stock market is at record levels, jobs, and unemployment. Also coming back in record numbers, we are leading the world in economic recovery. The best is yet to come. Now, what I find hilarious is that after he tweeted this, the stock market plunged. <laughs> But I mean, this is the worst possible thing you could say if you're trying to win an election because you are openly admitting that your party is the one that is obstructing everything. Your party is the reason why this stimulus bill isn't going to pass. When was it that they passed the CARE Act? It's been months since Americans got a one-time payment of $1,200. And you're saying we're not going to do jack fucking shit until after this election? Okay, well, reasonable people are going to see this and think to themselves, okay, well, what happens if Donald Trump loses this election? Because he's assuming that he's going to win. What if he loses? So no stimulus until after the election. But if, he's lo but if he loses as a lame duck president, does that mean that he's going to take action when he has like a month or so left? No. So what he's really saying in actuality is no action unless I win. Because if you wait until after the election and he loses, he's going to sit on his fucking ass, wait for the situation to get even worse, and then hand Joe Biden an even bigger disaster as his last fuck you to America as he leaves office. This is horrible politics. Horrible politics. To openly admit that you are the ones being obstructionist is like political suicide and it's astonishing that he's lost the plot this much because as dumb as he is he at least was a little bit more savvy strategically in 2016 but now he has no idea what to say to appeal to people and as he does worse and worse he only makes matters worse for himself you're basically admitting that you won't even try to come to the table to work with democrats on behalf of the american people as Crystal Ball put it, Pelosi and the Democrats literally wanted to help Trump give out money to millions of Americans just before the election, and he said no. I mean, think about that. Usually, if a party really was obstructionist, Democrats are not, they should be more, but if they were actually obstructionist, they wouldn't want to do anything that the sitting president who they're trying to defeat 
could brag about. So by passing a stimulus package right before the election, they're potentially giving Trump something to brag about. He could send out more checks before the election with his name on them. He won't even do that. That's how petty he is. That's how petulant he is. That's how much of an obstructionist ghoul he is. All for personal gain. Now, Trump is doing this because he thinks that it's going to benefit him electorally, but down-ballot Republicans are caught off guard by this, and they should be, because as CNN explains, the timing of Trump's sudden move perplexed even Republicans since there was little downside politically to allowing the talks to continue to play out. Now, they fear that Trump's decision will make it easier for Democrats to pit the blame squarely on the White House for the collapse of the talks as many voters are eager for more relief from Washington. And they're right to fear this, because you at least could have left it up in the air. Oh, well, you know, talks are stalling, but we're still working on, working on it, I promise you. But now, you just sent a huge signal to Americans. Blame me. I'm the one who's saying no more negotiations until after the election. That is so tone deaf, and I don't know how you thought this would help you. I mean, sure, people value strength in a leader. They want someone who's going to be, you know, uh, tough play hardball, negotiate on their behalf, but you just told Americans, I'm not going to do shit for you. Vote for me. I better win this election or we're not getting another round of uh, relief. Fuck you. That's what you just told the American people. I honestly, like, I'm almost speechless watching him put out this tweet. This is so fucking tone deaf. As Kyle Kalinske put it on Twitter, how to lose an election 101. You don't tell the American people you're not going to do anything for them until after an election. Whether or not people can put food on the table or pay the bills shouldn't be contingent on the outcome of the election. And you telling them that you don't care about them is really bad for you. Now, Bernie Sanders, I loved his response because he blasted Trump on Twitter saying after receiving the best socialized healthcare in the world, Trump just said no to providing any relief to the unemployed, the uninsured or the hungry. But he's still pushing the Senate to confirm a Supreme Court nominee who will strip healthcare from 20 million. How pathetic. And that's exactly it. That's probably the worst part, honestly, because, you know, you're not just saying we're not going to do anything until after this election. You're saying, I'm not going to help the American people, but I do want to get my Supreme Court nominee confirmed before the election. So, uh, Mitch, have at it. This is just so craven. You can tell how desperate he is, and he thinks this is going to benefit him, but this is not going to benefit him. That's not even a question. Like, you're hurting people. You're saying, I'm shutting down even the possibility. I mean, I don't think many of us expected there to be some sort of bill passed before the election but for you to just like outright deny that possibility you're just a fucking idiot i don't know what else to say you are fucking stupid donald trump but i mean honestly i want to say have at it because you're only going to make it more likely that you lose this election but at the same time it's like this shouldn't be about politics we shouldn't have to think about what will or won't hurt Donald Trump electorally speaking, if people need relief, we should have a government that gives them relief. But the way that we've responded to this pandemic is comparable to what we'd expect from a failed state. So, I mean, he's only hurting himself and he's making Democrats look better. They look more reasonable. They look like the ones who want to get something done for the American people. And he is unilaterally shutting down all negotiations right before an election saying, we're going to wait until after it's done. 
And when I win, then we'll do the relief. So you better vote for me or I'm going to punish you even more. <sighs> this is a bold strategy, Cotton. We'll see how it plays out. Literally after I finished recording that segment, he changed his mind. He already changed his mind. Tweeting out, if I am sent a standalone bill for stimulus checks, $1,200, they will go out to our great people immediately. I am ready to sign right now. Are you listening, Nancy? Mark Meadows, Senate Majority Leader, Kevin McCarthy, Speaker Pelosi, Senator Schumer. So somebody must have gotten to him and let him know that what he did was incredibly destructive, not just to his own electoral chances, but to their campaigns as well. If there's a senator who is in a purple state that wants this relief bill to go through or at least wants to make it seem as if they're fighting to have this stimulus passed but understand you still look like a petulant child because you flip-flopped within hours after tanking stimulus talks and then crashing the stock market after bragging about the stock market now you're saying okay well i changed my mind maybe we'll just do like the 1200 dollars payment so that way americans think that i sent them 1200 dollars okay but understand i that's that's something that we should do. I don't care who signs the bill, who passes the legislation. Americans need relief immediately, and $1,200 is not enough, but it's better than nothing, so pass that. I don't care about the politics, but understand why you still look like the one who's unreasonable here. The Democrats, months ago, already passed a stimulus package, the HEROES Act, and I'm not a fan of the HEROES Act. It doesn't go far enough. It's insufficient. Nancy Pelosi did not take in the input from progressive lawmakers. She rejected them and kind of isolated them, but still, it has a stimulus package in there. It gives Americans a direct cash payment, and on top of that, it provides schools with funding so they can actually open up safely and teach safely. So what you're basically saying is, I'm willing to do the bare minimum just so Americans think that I personally gave them $1,200, but when it comes to everything else that is essential, such as additional PPE and funding for schools, I don't want to do that. I mean, you've already dug this hole for yourself, and it's really difficult for you to get out of said hole. People need money. People need PPE. Schools need funding. And you're dragging your feet. People are now going to say, Democrats can easily say, Okay, well, we're fine with the $1,200 standalone bill, but it's faster if you just have the Senate pass the HEROES Act, which we passed months ago. Why hasn't Mitch McConnell taken action? They can easily say that. So, I mean, there's really no way for Trump to come out of this looking like the good guy. You already look like a child, and Americans are going to see that you're only flip-flopping because it's politically expedient for you to do that after someone probably told you it's not the best idea to give Americans the finger right before a national election, but... I mean, this is Donald Trump, so by the time I finish recording this, I'm sure he will change his mind once again. You know, you never know with him. His Twitter is just insane. Uh, just trying to navigate his timeline is honestly like a nightmare. He is extremely active on Twitter. He's rage-tweeting because he is pumped up on steroids, and it is quite the spectacle, but it is not necessarily something you want if you expect stability from the White House. 
I think that most people by now acknowledge the fact that Project Veritas is not to be taken seriously because this is quite literally a fake news organization. They deceptively edit videos, they take people out of context, and oftentimes they pay people to say things to reporters to set them up, to entrap them. And they've been busted numerous times. But yet, you know, if you stumble upon one of their videos and you don't know about James O'Keefe's history as a fraud and a huckster, it does look relatively persuasive and incriminating. So it still does dupe a lot of people, even if more and more individuals are becoming privy to the fact that this organization is not to be taken seriously. I mean, James O'Keefe is someone who barely has any more credibility than Alex Jones. So, you know, if you are a reasonable person and you learn about them, then you don't take them seriously. These are the people responsible for the 2015 Planned Parenthood video where executives were reportedly excitedly selling off parts of fetuses for personal gain. On top of that, when uh, Roy Moore had multiple women come out and accuse him of sexual assault, they tried to defend Roy Moore by paying someone to take a story to the Washington Post and say that Roy Moore sexually assaulted them. So that way, if the Washington Post takes the bait, they can then say, aha, they ran with this story and it turned out to be fake. I guess that means we should question all of the other allegations that uh, Roy Moore's other accusers brought forward too. So this is what they do. They have no integrity and they just did this again with regard to Ilhan Omar where they try to make it seem as if she was part of some intricate ballot harvesting scheme to buy off votes. And this, of course, unsurprisingly, was also revealed to be a fraud, they paid someone off to say what they wanted to, but I don't know if the million plus people that saw this video are going to know that this was fraudulent. The President of the United States already shared it, so the damage has been done, and let me just explain before we get to why this story in particular is fraudulent, how damaging this is to Ilhan Omar, who repeatedly receives death threats. The President is screaming at the top of his lungs about voter fraud, and Ilhan Omar is already a target of the right. So this video puts her in danger directly because you're saying, hey, voter fraud is an issue and she's the one who's perpetuating it. Look at this. Somebody is buying ballots or collecting ballots on her behalf. This is fraud. Don't you care about democracy? You should be concerned with this. So they work people up into a frenzy and they do it by deceiving them, by lying to them. As a journalist of Fox 9 explains, Leibin Osman, subject of Project Veritas' alleged voter fraud story, tells Tom Leiden of Fox 9 he was offered $10,000 by Omar Jamal to say he was collecting ballots for Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. Omar Jamal was Project Veritas' insider in the Somali community. Now, this report explains, in his first interview, Leibin Osman tells the Fox 9 investigators he was offered $10,000 by community activist Omar Jamal to say he was collecting ballots for Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. Quote, he was setting me up, said Leibin Osman. It is clear from the raw video obtained by Fox 9 that Leibin Osman was working for his brother's campaign. Leibin Osman admits the Project Veritas video footage looks incriminating, but he said the group deliberately left the full context on the cutting room floor. Project Veritas used two separate videos he posted on Snapchat while driving in his car to make it appear as if he was illegally picking up ballots and offering money for votes, he said. In a video from July, Leibin Osman said he was collecting mail-in ballots from sick and elderly voters who had requested them through the campaign. Now, I don't remember if in that video he said that he had 200 ballots or Project Veritas said that he had 200 ballots, but he said that in actuality he had like 20 ballots, 
which sounds reasonable if people are reaching out to the campaign to get them to collect their ballots. So the story, of course, fell apart and was proven to be fake. But that didn't stop Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard from signal boosting Project Veritas and promoting this story, tweeting out, Project Veritas offers further evidence of the need to ban ballot harvesting. It's not a partisan issue. It's been abused to help both Republicans and Democratic candidates, including in North Carolina and California. Please help by telling your congressional representative to pass our bipartisan bill, H.R. 8285. So first of all, I would argue that this is not a bipartisan bill because of the four co-sponsors that this legislation has, all of them are Republicans. Second of all, you have a member of Congress propping up Project Veritas. She should know better, but she propped up this literal fake news organization who propagated this smear of Ilhan Omar that could have endangered her. And she did all of this to promote her bill on ballot harvesting, so-called ballot harvesting. First of all, we shouldn't call it ballot harvesting because if we do that, we're just buying into the right-wing framing and they're using their terminology, which benefits them. This is ballot collecting. And guess what? It's not a scandal. It's necessary unless you want to disenfranchise potentially millions of sick and elderly people who are not able to drop off their own ballots. If you can't walk, if you can't drive, and you don't have anyone close to you who's able to actually turn in your ballot for you, you rely on campaigns to do this for you. It's not that big of a deal. Have there been instances where this has been abused? Yes, and actually Republicans are the ones, ironically, who've done this as they scream about voter fraud, at least in North Carolina. But I mean, this is something that states are already regulating. In North Carolina, you can only have a close relative turn in your ballot, but in 26 other states, it is lawful for someone who isn't a family member to collect your ballot. But I mean, if you just outright ban ballot collecting and you say, no, you have to turn in your ballot yourself. I don't care about the circumstances. This isn't good for democracy. This is worse for democracy. Because had my dad lived in a state where we didn't have mail-in voting to where you can just put your ballot in your own mailbox, this would have disenfranchised someone like him who couldn't walk, who couldn't drive. So if they want to vote and they give us the ballot, to drop off for them, the state is going to determine whether or not that's lawful. If you just ban it nationally, that's going to do more harm than good. Now, maybe it's the case that Tulsi Gabbard is anticipating these types of, you know, uh, situations where an elderly person needs someone to drop off the ballot for them. But I don't know because we don't have the text of this bill. If you go to the website where it talks about this legislation, there is no summary. So she literally just wants a blanket ban on so-called ballot harvesting when, no, voter fraud is not an issue. Voter fraud is statistically insignificant, but do you want to know what is an issue if you care about election integrity? Voter suppression. Illegal voter purges. Removing polling stations from communities of color. Making it more difficult for them to vote. That is what you should be concerned with. Not ballot collecting, which has been a thing always, which states have regulated individually like this is a non-issue and i don't understand why at a time when the president of the united states is trying to get everyone to think that democrats are going to cheat and widespread voter fraud is a thing a member of the democratic party would want to lend credence to his bogus claim so i mean i was disappointed in tulsi once again not just for you know propping up project veritas because i feel like she should know better but for making a bigger issue out of ballot collecting 
than it is. This this isn't something that you should be concerned with if you care about election integrity. To the extent that it's an issue, it's not a big enough issue to where it's going to sway the outcome of uh, a national election in the way that voter suppression might in swing states, for example. I mean, this is unnecessary to just blanket ban all ballot collecting. But Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez seemed to agree with me, and she actually tweeted out, Tulsi Gabbard, you, along with everyone else who amplified this fraudulent story, owe Representative Omar a public apology. Ilhan Omar then responded, saying, Thank you, Alex. Lack of integrity from these folks is astonishing. Tulsi Gabbard then responded to them, saying, AOC and Ilhan Omar, the issue is not about any of us. It's about voter harvesting. Ilhan, I apologize for referencing the PV story as an example without thoroughly vetting it. Now, will you support H.R. 8285 to get rid of voter harvesting, which undermines our democracy? If not, why not? So, first of all, I do actually respect her for apologizing. However, I explained in a quote tweet to her why ballot harvesting isn't actually a big deal. And if you truly care about strengthening our democracy, voter suppression should be your number one issue. And she literally unfollowed me for that tweet. I kid you not. So, um, apparently, she isn't open to listening to what people have to say about ballot harvesting. When we're telling you you're helping Donald Trump with his narrative, and this isn't really that serious of an issue, um, I don't understand it. Because, like, here's the thing. She is uh, retiring from Congress. She chose to not seek re-election because she was running for president. She wanted to focus on that, and that's fine. So you have, what, uh, a month or two left in Congress? Why are you making this your lasting legacy when you actually do have good legislation? She is sponsoring a bill that would pardon Julian Assange and Edward Snowden. Wouldn't you be championing this over ballot harvesting? I mean, I don't understand why this is the thing that you're focusing your energy on. And I mean, there are so many important things that we can do to strengthen our democracy. You can opt for electoral reform. Tulsi Gabbard has not sponsored HR 4000, which would uh, move us to ranked choice voting and gerrymandering, get rid of our majoritarian electoral system. She hasn't co-sponsored this. That would help make our elections more democratic. There are things you can do if you truly care about election integrity. This is not one of them. But I mean, if you are going out and you just want something to be your lasting legacy, why wouldn't you put your bill to pardon Assange and Snowden front and center. Why focus on this and make such a big deal out of it? Especially when it's not a big deal in actuality and you know it helps Donald Trump with his voter fraud narrative. Like, why do this? Like, I don't get it. It's perplexing. And apparently she doesn't uh, want to engage, hence why she uh, decided to unfollow me. But I mean, she didn't want to come on my program back when I had legitimate questions about her campaign and, you know, some of her positions. She said she did. Oh, I'd love to come on your show, Mike. And then I never heard back from her once they asked for the topics and I sent them the list. Apparently some things are just, she doesn't want to be questioned or challenged. And that's fine. Look, you're you're on your way out. You're not going to be a member of Congress next year. So I get it. You know, it doesn't necessarily matter. You don't have to explain yourself to anybody. But if you genuinely care about election integrity, like this is baffling to me. The vice presidential debate took place, and I know immediately who won as soon as it was over. The fly. Bias against minorities is, is a great insult to the men and women who serve in law enforcement. And I want everyone to know who puts on the uniform of law enforcement every day that President Trump and I stand with you. 
And it is remarkable that... (laughs) (laughs) Now, while we're zoomed in on Mike Pence, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that his eye is a little bit more red than usual. Now, some people were tweeting that COVID-19, actually one of the symptoms is pink eye. I don't know if that's true, but... What I do know is that it was a little bit weird just for optics purposes. I know that he can't control this, but it made him look more evil um, than <laughs> I think he wanted to appear. Uh, so overall, let's let's go ahead and get to some substance. This debate was largely forgettable. It was more watchable, infinitely more watchable than the first presidential debate. But I think largely it was forgettable and it's not going to change the trajectory of this race. Now, going into this debate, Mike Pence needed a really breakout performance. He did not get that. And I think overall, you know, if you compare both of their performances, Kamala Harris definitely won to me. Now, this isn't necessarily a blowout win. I think that she won, but it wasn't necessarily her best performance ever. I think that her performance at at that first Democratic debate, that was the best debate performance that she's ever given. At this debate, you can tell that she came prepared She brought her A-game, but I think that there were a couple of moments where, you know, she missed opportunities to really, you know, put Mike Pence on the offensive. And, you know, it really was frustrating to watch this. Now, coming into this, she really came out swinging and she took shots at Mike Pence and Donald Trump for their incompetence and mishandling COVID-19. And she had the perfect quips to respond to him when he said, look, you guys want to mandate everything such as masks. Why don't we trust the American people? She responded by saying, uh, why don't we trust the American people by telling them the truth, then citing the fact that this administration lied about the severity of COVID-19 when they knew back in January. That was a really strong point. Um, Mike Pence, in an attempt to defend himself, thought it was a good idea to bring up swine flu, which did not affect as many people in the way that COVID is affecting people. I mean, Trump did this too. I don't know why they think this is a good idea because Obama handled that competently. You can say it was severe, but the economy didn't crash as a result of swine flu. 210,000 Americans did not die as a result of swine flu. So every time they bring up swine flu as a gotcha on Joe Biden and Obama, it reminds everyone that Obama and Biden are much more competent than they are. So I don't know what they're thinking in bringing this up. Now, in a way to kind of pivot and divert attention away from him and Donald Trump, he brought up the fact that their COVID-19 action plan looks similar to theirs, and then he attacked Joe Biden for plagiarism. Come on, man! And he's correct that plagiarism has previously ended Joe Biden's presidential runs. However, you're bringing this up in the context of COVID-19 and your failure, which resulted in hundreds of thousands of deaths. He really needed to find some way to project some level of competence because Donald Trump has failed on every single front. And he just he needed to reassure the American people that there's at least one grown up in this administration that's going to take responsibility and has a plan of action. He did not do that. And for that reason alone, even if Kamala's performance wasn't great, I think that Mike Pence lost this debate. Now, I will say he is a better debater than Donald Trump. I don't think that he turned off as many people as Donald Trump did, but I will say maybe it's the case that people liked Mike Pence's performance if they're traditionally conservative, but they're turned off by Donald Trump's belligerence and his antics. Maybe, but he came off as so fake and smarmy that I I don't know how this is going 
to sit well with people, this is a little bit more subjective. So, you know, I could be imposing my own bias here in this situation. But to me, it was it was really, really difficult to listen to him. He was completely insufferable. And there were a few moments where he was let off the hook when he shouldn't have been, both by the moderator and Kamala Harris. So first of all, uh, let's be clear, he did not state that he believes in man-made climate change. He denied anthropogenic climate change. He said, look, the climate is changing. And then he went on to espouse more right-wing talking points. In 2020, after we just witnessed wildfires sweep the West Coast, you are going to deny climate change. I mean, you just are tone deaf and you don't know how to read the room. You're too far in that right-wing bubble. On top of that, towards the end of, uh, of the debate, and we're going to talk about this in a separate segment, I don't know if you missed it, but when he was asked whether or not he would uh, commit to a peaceful transfer of power or what he would do if Trump didn't commit to a peaceful transfer of power, rather, um, he did not answer the question. He talked about how, oh, well, for the last couple of years, Democrats didn't want to accept the results of the election. Yeah, but that's a little bit different. Hillary Clinton being bitter and ins insufferable, that's different. You know, the, her blaming everyone is different than an incumbent president refusing to step down when they have power. That's a very different situation. He didn't answer that question. And while we're on the subject of Mike Pence not answering questions, I can't recall a time where he answered a single question. Like, every single question he dodged. And it was so slimy and obvious that I was screaming at my TV, hoping that Kamala Harris would call him out for it. Uh, and it was a missed opportunity when he brought up court packing. And he tried to get her to give a direct answer. And she fumbled right there. She fumbled and she fumbled badly. And it was not a very good look. Um, the problem with her answer there is that you can tell that she was very conspicuously trying to dodge the question. And when she dodges questions, she doesn't do it as artfully as Mike Pence. You know, you can see that she's floundering and she's trying to come up with something to say, whereas Mike Pence already has his dodges and answers to questions predetermined. So it's a little bit more obvious. And he kind of pressed her on this and it made it seem as if she wouldn't answer the question. Now, that is just one instance where Kamala Harris explicitly avoided answering a question, but compare that to Mike Pence, he answered basically no questions. So at that point going forward, I really wanted Kamala Harris to point out he didn't answer the question. You don't have to interrupt him to do that, but when you get your time to speak, you can say, he didn't answer the question, America. I hope you're paying attention. He did not give you a clear answer because that's something that needs to be addressed because the average viewer who's just kind of watching, uh, listening in the background, maybe they're not going to really uh, consciously acknowledge that. It may be subconscious. So you want that to be at the forefront of their minds, that this guy is a weasel if they can't already see it for themselves. You want to point that out, make it easy for them, connect the dots for them. Um, so that was a missed opportunity, although Kamala Harris was decisive. She seemed like she was a grown-up. On top of that, when Mike Pence attempted to interrupt her, you know, she shut him down, and that was really great, because if there's anything that Americans like, it is strength. It is someone who is not afraid to stand up to another individual. I think that's going to play well for her. And honestly, all of the facial reactions that she was making, I think that was a good look because like I was making those same facial reactions because the things that Mike Pence were saying were deeply unpopular, deeply unpopular. And yet somehow the debate was still taking place 
on his terms, on right-wing terms, when this is a far-right individual, like he's talking about how extreme the Democrats are and how liberal Kamala Harris is. He even said that she's more liberal than Bernie Sanders, which is a joke. But why are we allowing the debate to take place on the terms of this right-wing ghoul? When he brings up that you want to ban fracking, don't just repeat, oh, no, of course, Joe would never want to ban fracking. We know that that's the policy, and he doesn't support banning fracking. His policy is basically, we're going to rein it in somewhat and not grant as many permits to frackers, but it's still not great. So, like, you don't want to lean into something that's unpopular. And she even tweeted out on Twitter, her campaign team said, we will not ban fracking. Stop running away from things like this. Now, this brings me to uh, my biggest gripe with Kamala Harris. It was when she tried to walk a fine line between centrism and, uh, you know, trying not to turn off the left-wing supporters that are reluctantly supporting Joe Biden. Now, if you watched my pre-debate preview, I brought up a situation wherein Kamala Harris could have face planted. So my, you know, what came to mind when I was bringing this up was Medicare for all, because I was expecting my Pence to bring up Medicare for all and say, well, look, you support socialized medicine. And then when she says no, he can then point out that she supported it in the primaries and her and Joe Biden actually went at it in the primaries over their disagreement when it comes to Medicare for all. Now we know that she doesn't support Medicare for all, but what I said was that her strategy should be to either, you know, uh, swipe that aside and just attack, go on the offensive and say, your administration supports a lawsuit that would overturn the Affordable Care Act, which means that millions of people will lose protections uh, currently if they have pre-existing conditions, or she can not run away from it. She can say, look, I don't necessarily support Bernie's iteration of Medicare for All, but I do support moving towards a universal healthcare system. And this is a genuine disagreement between me and Joe Biden, but this is something that we're w willing to debate. It seems like the American people is on our side, so we're going to work it out. Um, now, that didn't happen. The Medicare for All disaster scenario did not come to fruition, although a similar situation came up, and uh, it basically played out exactly as I expected the Medicare for All situation to play out. The Green New Deal. This was bad. So, uh, Mike Pence brought up how she supports the Green New Deal. In fact, she was one of the first co-sponsors in the Senate to support the Green New Deal. And um, she ran away from it. Now, she didn't handle it as poorly as I feared, but it still wasn't a good look because climate change is a very serious issue. And the Green New Deal is a very popular policy. So when you are debating someone who doesn't even believe that anthropogenic climate change is a thing, you in no way have to grant him anything in this conversation, you do not have to debate on his terms. He is false on every single level when it comes to the issue of climate change. And so the only thing that you need to do when it comes to climate change is shame Mike Pence for not even believing in climate change, for not believing the science. But I mean, she kind of ran away from, you know, the popular thing, which is what I expected, but it's still disappointing. However, you know, even having said that, I don't want to make it seem as if my overall impression of Kamala Harris was negative because I think she performed really well. I think she did a good job at really holding her ground. And Mike Pence kind of talked himself into a corner on numerous occasions and fell into the same traps that Trump did, even if he did successfully lay some right-wing traps for Kamala Harris that she walked right into. I mean, he himself, 
you know, he dug a hole for himself. So literally on a national debate stage claimed that systemic racism is not a thing. And he attacked Kamala Harris and Joe Biden for saying that systemic racism is real. But what does he do minutes later? He disproves his own argument by saying, well, when you were attorney general in California, black Americans were disproportionately locked up for low-level drug crimes. What do we call that, Mike Pence? What do we call a system that disproportionately targets one group of people? So he does this and he looks foolish. And I mean, if you do uh, one thing, uh, you say one thing at the beginning of the debate and then you contradict yourself towards the end of the debate, that may not be as bad, but it stings when you contradict yourself within like five minutes. And Donald Trump did the same thing. You know, he shamed Joe Biden for the 1994 crime bill, which suggests that he's too tough on crime. And then minutes later, he's saying, you won't even say the words law and order. So which is it? Is he too tough on crime or not tough enough on crime? And this is a problem with the Trump administration. They attack Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and end up inadvertently taking different sides on the same issue. And it makes them look foolish. And furthermore, when Mike Pence was asked about whether or not justice was served in the Breonna Taylor case, that long pause right there, it felt like it was an eternity before he basically said, um, yes, I trust our justice system. No, that is not a good answer because Trump has not showed even a modicum of sympathy for the Black Lives Matter movement. And when you have a majority of Americans, according to one poll, say that protesters were justified in burning down a Minneapolis police station. If you want to win, you've got to at least show that you have a little bit of a clue. And Mike Pence didn't even answer an easy question right. So he pivots away from the Breonna Taylor question and he goes into rioting and looting. You were asked about Breonna Taylor and you talk about rioting and looting. So what you just admitted to the American people unwittingly is that Violence against inanimate objects, private property, is more egregious to you than violence against black people. Now you know why you are struggling with the black vote. Because of things like this. You have not a single clue and you're unwilling to listen. You condemn, 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 but you never ask why people are in the streets, why they're protesting. Maybe it's the case that they have legitimate grievances that you are refusing to address. So overall... I think that Kamala Harris won this debate. Was it a blowout? No, not necessarily. But, you know, comparing this to the first presidential debate, I think that her victory was more clear than Joe Biden's victory because I don't necessarily believe that Joe Biden had a good performance at that debate. But I think that Trump ended up losing that debate on his own because he wouldn't shut up and he ended up turning a lot of people off. And in this instance, I think that Kamala Harris actually put in work and she won that debate. Now, a lot of people widely believed that Mike Pence beat Tim Kaine in the 2016 debate. But this time, I just, I don't see it. I will say that Mike Pence is probably more skilled than other Republicans at debating. Uh, if you take into account the tactics that he uses to get someone on the offensive, like the moment when he basically got Kamala Harris to fumble when it comes to answering the question as to whether or not they'd pack the court. That was a good tactical move. However, 
just him refusing to answer any questions, his overall demeanor and smugness, the style, I don't know if what he's offering is going to resonate with people. I just don't. And by the way, I think that when it comes to court packing, we should definitely pack the court because we don't have a choice. We can't be going backwards in history and refighting these battles that we already won. Uh, but I don't, I don't know strategically if it would behoove Kamala Harris to admit this, that they want to pack the court. Because on one hand, and David Pakman made this point, he says that, you know, if Joe Biden says we're not going to pack the Supreme Court, you turn off the left who want you to pack the Supreme Court and some centrists, to be fair. Um, but on another hand, if you say we are going to pack the Supreme Court, you may fire up your own base, but also fire up the Republican base. And I think they're already fired up because they want to see Amy Coney Barrett uh, confirmed. But, uh, you know, if you keep your cards close to your chest in this instance, I think that you might end up being better off. I don't think that they're going to pack the court. I uh, am hoping so, but I'm not getting my hopes too high. I'm not going to hold my breath. Um, but I mean, when it comes to this issue in general, Mike Pence, he argues from a position and assumes that everyone is a right winger. Like he called out Kamala Harris because Brett Kavanaugh was apparently treated so poorly. He was credibly accused of rape. Second of all, the reason why she was questioning whether or not his religiosity was a factor in his uh, judicial interpretation is because Knights of Columbus, the organization with which he is a part of, is a homophobic, an openly homophobic organization. So if that influences him and the way that he interprets the Constitution, I think that that's something that you have to try to figure out. In fact, I'd argue it's Kamala's responsibility being on the Senate Judiciary Committee to figure out whether or not this individual will be biased against a portion of the population. So Mike Pence, you know, he makes this argument not acknowledging that the overwhelming majority of Americans now support marriage equality, right? And they don't believe that someone's religiosity is going to justify, you know, bigotry against a portion of the population. But he just, like, he assumes that everyone's conservative and he argues passionately from that point and he kind of, like, ropes people in into uh, accepting this notion that most people are right-wingers when in actuality, just because the Overton window is so far to the right, that doesn't mean that most Americans are conservative. Even if they self-identify as conservative, they support progressive policies. Look at the Green New Deal, Medicare for All, raising the minimum wage. Americans are with us, not the right. So I think that, you know, going forward, Democrats need to acknowledge this, this and, you know, play offense more and not let Republicans, you know, uh, back them into defending themselves when they're the ones who should be speaking up for their records. But I mean, look, at the end of the day, I don't want to spend too much time on this debate because I don't think it's going to change the trajectory of this race. I think that Kamala Harris won for two reasons. First and foremost, I think her performance was uh, was excellent, right? It wasn't perfect. It was probably A minus. It wasn't an A plus, but still it was really good. And uh, second of all, the reason why I think she won is because Mike Pence, I mean, the expectations were really high. He needed a blowout performance in order to even start to change the trajectory of this election in him and Donald Trump's favor. And he didn't do that. He failed. He couldn't adequately defend himself, which is what Americans are most concerned with right now. Why COVID-19 is ravaging the country and why isn't this administration doing more? And he didn't uh, answer for that. And because of that... 
I think that Kamala Harris ultimately won, uh, but I don't think this is going to lead to a boost for Joe Biden because it wasn't as striking. You know, when, when you watch that first presidential debate, like, the takeaway is you just feel gross, right? Like, you almost have this visceral reaction seeing Donald Trump so unhinged and argumentative and just constantly talking over Joe Biden at that debate. But in this debate, it was relatively normal. So, you know, I don't think it's going to further galvanize either side, but I don't think it's, you know, uh, going to necessarily help at all when it comes to saving the Titanic that is, you know, the Trump 2020 campaign. So they're losing time. They've got to turn this around quick. And this debate did not help them with that. At the vice presidential debate, COVID-19 expectedly came up and Mike Pence had his work cut out for him because he had to do two things in order to be effective. First of all, he had to prove to Americans that he's at least one of the grown-ups in the room when dealing with this virus because we know that Trump is incapable of acting like an adult, so he just had to prove to us that he's at least a little bit more responsible than Donald Trump. Second of all, he had to somehow defend what's effectively indefensible. He had to defend and explain himself to the American people as to why this administration, one, was untruthful about the severity of this virus and why 210,000 Americans are dead on their watch. How you do this, I don't know. But before I show you what he had to say, this was the opening sequence of the debate and this was the first question that Kamala was asked. You can tell by the way that she shreds him it's going to be really difficult for him to try to save himself here because, again, this is difficult to defend something that's indefensible, but the way that she attacked him for bungling this pandemic, it really was brilliant. Take a look. What would a Biden administration do in January and February that a Trump administration wouldn't do? Would you impose new lockdowns for businesses and schools and hotspots, a federal mandate to wear masks? You have two minutes to respond without interruption. Thank you, Susan. Well, the American people have witnessed what is the greatest failure of any presidential administration in the history of our country. And here are the facts. 210,000 dead people in our country in just the last several months. Over 7 million people who have contracted this disease. One in five businesses closed. We're looking at frontline workers who have been treated like sacrificial workers. We are looking at over 30 million people who in the last several months had to file for unemployment. And here's the thing. On January 28th, the vice president and the president were informed about the nature of this pandemic. They were informed that it's lethal in consequence, that it is airborne, that it will affect young people, and that it would be contracted because it is airborne. And they knew what was happening, and they didn't tell you. Can you imagine if you knew on January 28th, as opposed to March 13th, what they knew, what you might have done to prepare? They knew, and they covered it up. The president said it was a hoax. They minimized the seriousness of it. The president said, you're on one side of his ledger if you wear a mask, you're on the other side of his ledger if you don't. And in spite of all of that, today they still don't have a plan. They still don't have a plan. Well, Joe Biden does. And our plan is about what we need to do around a national strategy for contact tracing, for testing, 
for administration of the vaccine and making sure that it will be free for all. That is the plan that Joe Biden has and that I have, knowing that we have to get a hold of what has been going on and we need to save our country. And Joe Biden is the best leader to do that. And frankly, this administration has forfeited their right to re-election based on this. So she really did a good job right there. I think that that's effective. I think that's going to land. And I was a little bit worried when she, you know, she was asked basically, what would you do differently? And I was worried that she was taking too much time pointing out what Donald Trump did wrong. But she did actually land on some solutions and she didn't spend as much time on that. But the way that she presented it made it seem as if, oh, well, the solution actually is pretty simple. We need contact tracing. We need uh, to make sure we do more testing. And these are things that Trump says he's doing. We have more testing than any other countries. But I mean, you keep talking, you keep saying that you're doing all of this stuff, but we're seeing cases spike again. 40,000 new cases a day, 45,000 new cases a day, 210,000 deaths. So the solution, it isn't that complicated. Kamala Harris, I think she did a great job at explaining how you failed and why it's really not that difficult. You just need a serious person to get in there and uh, fix it. So, you know, that right there, if people tuned in just for like the first 10 minutes of the debate and then tuned out and all they saw was that, Kamala Harris is coming away looking really good. Now, if they saw this, Kamala Harris is coming away looking even better because Mike Pence tried to defend himself and he came off as smug and fake. And what he says is honestly just embarrassing. But I want the American people to know that from the very first day, President Donald Trump has put the health of America first. Before there were more than five cases in the United States, all people who had returned from China, President Donald Trump did what no other American president had ever done, and that was he suspended all travel from China, the second largest economy in the world. Now, Senator Joe Biden opposed that decision. He said it was xenophobic and hysterical. But I can tell you, having led the White House Coronavirus Task Force, that that decision alone by President Trump bought us invaluable time to stand up the greatest national mobilization since World War II. And I believe it saved hundreds of thousands of American lives. Because with that time, we were able to reinvent testing. More than 115 million tests have been done to date. We were able to see to the delivery of billions of supplies so our doctors and nurses had the resources support they needed. And we began, really, before the month of February was art, to develop a vaccine and to develop medicines and therapeutics that had been saving lives all along the way. And under President Trump's leadership, Operation Warp Speed, we believe, will have literally tens of millions of doses of a vaccine before the end of this year. The reality is, when you look at the Biden plan, it reads an awful lot, like what President Trump and I and our task force have been doing every step of the way. I mean, quite frankly, when I look at their plan that talks about advancing testing, creating new PPE, developing a vaccine, um, it looks a little bit like plagiarism, which is something Joe Biden knows a little bit about. And I think the American people know that this is a president who has put the Thank health you, of Vice America president. first, and the American people, I believe with my heart, can be Thank proud you, of the sacrifices yes. they have made. It's saved countless Thank you, American yes. lives. Senator Harris, would oh, you like to respond? Absolutely. I, whatever the vice president is claiming the administration has done, clearly it hasn't worked. When you're looking at over 210,000 dead bodies in our country, American lives, 
that have been lost, families that are grieving that loss. And you know, the vice president is the head of the task force and knew on January 28th how serious this was. And then thanks to Bob Woodward, we learned that they knew about it. And then when that was exposed, the vice president said, when asked, well, why didn't you all tell anybody? He said, because the president wanted people to remain calm. Well, let's get so to I, have, No, but Susan, I, this is important. Susan, I, and I, I, I want to add, if, Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking. I have to I'm speaking. Yeah, you can so have 15 I, I, I more wanna, seconds, and then we'll give the vice president a chance to So respond. I want to ask the American people, how calm were you when you were panicked about where you're going to get your next roll of toilet paper? How calm were you when your kids were sent home from school and you didn't know when they could go back? How calm Thank were you, you Thank when you, your Senator children Harris. couldn't see your parents because you were afraid they could kill them? Let's give Vice President Pence a chance to respond. Vice well, President Pence, you have one minute to respond. You know, there's not a day gone by that I haven't thought of every American family that's lost a loved one. And I want all of you to know that you'll always be in our hearts and in our prayers. But when you say what the American people have done over these last eight months hasn't worked, that's a great disservice to the sacrifices the American people have made. I'm afraid the reality, to the if, I may, if I may finish, Senator, the reality is Dr. Fauci said everything that he told the president in the Oval Office, the president told the American people. Now, President Trump, I will tell you, has boundless confidence in the American people, and he always spoke with confidence that we'd get through this together. But when you say it hasn't worked, when Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks and our medical experts came to us in the second week of March, they said if the president didn't take the unprecedented step of shutting down roughly half of the American economy, that we could lose 2.2 million Americans. Now, that's the reality. So I know that there is a lot of Donald Trump diehards in this country, but even they probably could sense that that was a bullshit answer. That was a horrible answer. So first of all, he defends himself by saying or implying rather that they would have been more competent than Joe Biden because they instituted the travel ban from China, which, you know, Joe Biden said was xenophobic. Now, here's the thing, and I wish that Kamala Harris would have pointed this out. You knew about the severity of COVID-19. Kamala Harris and Joe Biden did not. So forgive everyone else for expecting Trump to just act in a reactionary manner and not really do what is reasonable or logical and just, you know, try to ban people from entering the country. You already have a Muslim ban on the books. So it's like, are we really that unreasonable, especially if we don't know how severe this is, but you do? I mean, you could have been upfront with us and say, look, this is airborne. This is a lot worse than the common cold or the flu. So we have to take these precautions, but you didn't do that. So to just say, well, we did the China ban, that isn't sufficient. Like that doesn't make you look good, especially because you had complete information and everyone else had incomplete information. It actually makes you look worse because if that's all that you did, I mean, I just can't see how he thinks this is going to land. On top of that, uh, he brought up plagiarism. He says, well, look, your action plan looks pretty similar to ours. Looks like it was plagiarized, and Joe Biden wouldn't know a thing or two about plagiarism. Now, as I stated in my full debate breakdown, yes, Joe Biden uh, was humiliated before when he ran for president because he was busted, plagiarizing speeches. Uh, but you're clearly trying to divert attention away from you and attack Joe Biden. But here's the thing right now. I don't give a flying fuck about that in the face of COVID-19. Like, if we're having a conversation within the context of, like, who's more trustworthy, 
then maybe you bring up the plagiarism thing. But to bring up plagiarism just randomly and take that pot shot while you're talking about a serious issue where more than 200,000 Americans have died because you have bungled it? I mean, the average person is going to think, I don't care if he's a plagiarist so long as he actually handles this virus so my life can return to normal. Like, for him to just shoehorn that in, it was out of place, it was off-putting, and it's just a bad look. Because you are the one who's supposed to defend yourself. And Kamala's not a plagiarist, so what is she supposed to say to that? You're not even saying this to Joe Biden. So it just, it came off horribly. And I think that Kamala Harris responded in a way that was sufficient. She said, look, whatever you guys are doing, if we're copying your plan, it hasn't worked. And on top of that, you were the head of the task force. So why are we seeing so many deaths? So he just, there was no way that he was able to back himself out of a corner and, you know, to say all of these wonderful things about how, oh, we love the American people, we respect the American people, it's not enough. But the worst moment by far of this exchange was when he misconstrued Kamala Harris's argument deliberately. And he said, you know, when you say that the American people, what they've done hasn't worked, that's just insulting. And I'm paraphrasing, but anyone who's watching sees that it was obvious Kamala Harris was not saying, oh, the American people are terrible at handling this pandemic. She was referring specifically to this administration. When she says you've bungled COVID-19, why would you extrapolate and think that she is talking about the American people? The American people don't have power in this situation. You have power. You're in control. You're in the White House. You've got the Oval Office. Why are you the ones that are fucking up? It's not the American people. You're fucking up. And there's no way that he believes that that's what she meant. He was trying to get some rubes who vote Republican and are loyal to think, oh, well, yeah, she's she's saying that I'm the one who messed up. Fuck her. No, no, nobody's going to buy that. Um, So this was a horrible look for Mike Pence. And, you know, I know I just said that the uh, that part was the worst part. But I want to talk about the most embarrassing part. And Trump did this as well. And I don't know why they do this, but. Mike Pence brought up swine flu. He brought up swine flu in a conversation about COVID-19 where more than 200,000 Americans have died. Take a look. If the swine flu had been as lethal as the coronavirus in 2009, when Joe Biden was vice president, we would have lost 2 million American lives. It is astonishing to me that they think this is persuasive because every time you invoke swine flu, all you do is remind people that Obama and Biden handled that more competently because does anyone remember a relative dying from swine flu? The numbers are much, much smaller. Does anyone remember the economy collapsing because of swine flu and their entire lives being changed, losing their jobs because of swine flu? No. So for you to say, well, hypothetically, if, you know, swine flu was as deadly as COVID, then, you know, if you crunch the numbers and you uh, divide by two, then it would have been. The no. We're not dealing with hypotheticals, we're dealing with reality. And the fact of the matter is that Obama and Biden handled swine flu adequately. Because guess what? It was gone pretty quickly. That's not the case with COVID-19. And hundreds of thousands of people are dying. So the fact that he would bring up swine flu, like that's the last thing that you want to do. Like if I am advising Donald Trump and Mike Pence, I tell them to stay far away from swine flu because you're just going to remind people that, you know, these types of things can actually be mitigated. We can contain the spread of viruses if we have someone who's competent. So this was a disaster for Mike Pence. 
And this is why I think, you know, largely coming away from this debate, even if Mike Pence wasn't as bad as a debater as Donald Trump, not like even bad in terms of debating people. Like, I think that Trump probably just turned off more people. Mike Pence is a better debater than Donald Trump. But people right now, they want answers. And COVID-19 is the number one issue. This is the number one thing that's affecting people's lives. So for you to not take responsibility for your fuck up and to try to divert attention away to plagiarism and then invoke swine flu to try to, you know, do this gotcha, it just, it makes you look so bad. And, you know, you think that he would have expected this to come up and had prepared a better response for it. And everything he said, I think, was rehearsed and pre-written. But the fact that this is all that you came up with, it's just honestly laughable. So within Donald Trump's administration, Mike Pence is widely viewed as the more serious individual, the grown-up in the room, if you will, the more normal and traditional Republican. So Donald Trump has uh, refused to commit to a peaceful transferal of power. And at the vice presidential debate, Mike Pence was asked very clearly, if Trump doesn't commit to a peaceful transferal of power, what do you do in that situation as his vice president? Um, listen to Mike Pence's response and see if you think he really is a more normal Republican. President Trump has several times refused to commit himself to a peaceful transfer of power after the election. If Vice President Biden is declared the winner and President Trump refuses to accept a peaceful transfer of power, what would be your role and responsibility as vice president? What would you personally do? You have two minutes. Well, Susan, first and foremost, I think we're going to win this election. Because while uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris rattle off a long litany of the establishment in Washington, D.C., an establishment that Joe Biden's been a part of for 47 years, President Donald Trump is has launched a movement of everyday Americans from every walk of life. And uh, I have every confidence that those, those same Americans that delivered that historic victory in 2016, they see this president's record where we rebuild our military, we revived our economy through tax cuts and rolling back regulation, fighting for fair trade, unleashing American energy. We appointed conservatives to our federal courts at every level. And, and we stood with the men and women of law enforcement every single day. And I think, I think that movement of Americans has only grown stronger in the last four years. But when you talk about accepting the outcome of the election, um, I, I must tell you, uh, Senator, your party has spent the last three and a half years trying to overturn the results of the last election. It's amazing. When Joe Biden was vice president of the United States, the FBI actually spied on President Trump and my campaign. I mean, there were documents released this week that the CIA actually made a referral uh, to the FBI documenting that those allegations were coming from the Hillary Clinton campaign. And of course, we've all seen the avalanche, the, what, what you put the country through for, for the better part of, of three years until it was found that there was no obstruction, no collusion. So we're going to stop it right there because he just drones on and on. And the point is, he doesn't answer the question. He does not answer the question. And as a result, he is also, like Donald Trump, not committing to a peaceful transferal of power. And then he goes on to bring up Hillary Clinton again. Oh, well, she told Joe Biden that under no circumstances should he accept the results of the election. Now, I think that he may be 
taking her out of context. I think that she said something to the effect of don't accept the results until all of the results come in or something like that. But the point is, nobody cares what Hillary Clinton thinks. Like, I understand that strategically it makes sense for him to try to tie someone who's unpopular like Hillary Clinton to Joe Biden, but nobody cares what she thinks. We're asking you what an incumbent president, an incumbent administration would do in the event you reject the results. Donald Trump, your boss, rejects the results. And his excuses here are just mind-numbingly stupid. First of all, he cites the establishment. Um, you're part of the establishment, buddy. You are an establishment Republican, and you don't get to play that card any longer. You're no longer the populist in this race. You showed your cards. Trump hasn't been running as a populist. He's been attacking the far left. You're not a populist. You don't get to talk about the establishment anymore, you know, as if you don't like them when you are part of that establishment. But he says, for the last three years, your party has been trying to overturn the results of the election. Again, Hillary Clinton being bitter about why she lost and blaming James Comey and Russia and this and that, that's different than the situation. Hillary Clinton did not have power. In this instance, if you refuse to accept the results of the election, you have power. You are in control of institutions that you can manipulate to your advantage to effectively steal this election away from Joe Biden, even if he wins. Now, there is an article from The Atlantic that I would encourage all of you to uh, read. It's from Barton Gelman. And basically, he explains how what Trump can do is he can cry fraud if he doesn't like the results of the election if he loses and in the swing states where it's close where Republicans are in control of those states' legislatures, Trump can basically say, you know what, the results are fraudulent, I don't accept them, we are going to recommend that these Republican-controlled legislators appoint their own electors that they send to the Electoral College, and even if Joe Biden won in those states, we're going to have our Republican electors vote against the will of the people in that state, basically tipping it in his favor. Like Hillary Clinton, when she lost, even if she straight up refused to concede, which she did concede, even if she was insufferable after she lost, but I mean, even if she refused to concede, it didn't matter as much because she didn't have power. It's different if you have power and you don't want to give up said power. And the fact that they don't understand this is why they're losing, because Americans by and large, believe in democracy. They want to see a peaceful transferal of power. And whenever you and Donald Trump say that, well, maybe we will, maybe we won't accept the results of the election, that's not helping you, that's hurting you. And to bring up Hillary Clinton, it just makes it seem as if you're trying to dodge the question. And at this debate, if you watched it, Mike Pence, I don't know if he answered a single question. Like, he would not answer any questions. He constantly had, you know, a rehearsed set of lines all Republican Fox News talking points, like I honestly knew what he was going to say in some instances before he even opened his mouth. That's how predictable it was. But you are not saying that you're going to accept the results of the election. You won't commit to a peaceful transferal of power, which is an absolute necessity. It's the hallmark of democracies. If you don't accept a peaceful transferal of power and commit to it, regardless of the outcome of the election, then you're saying you don't agree with democracy. And, you know, he tries to brush it aside by saying, well, I believe we're going to win. Okay, but what if you don't? What if you don't? The polls show right now that you're not performing too hot. Now, that can change. You could still win. But 
if you don't win, what's going to happen? Are we going to see a shit show? That's basically like what we're trying to figure out. And they're not reassuring us, right? They're not making the situation seem like it's going to be any less chaotic. And what they don't realize is that they're galvanizing the other side to want to really get out and vote, support Joe Biden, because people want to make sure that he wins decisively. So that way there's no scenario where Donald Trump can you know, try to appoint his own electors or steal it and cry fraud. Like they want it to be decisive. So by basically inadvertently threatening chaos, by refusing to commit to a peaceful transfer of power, you're hurting your own case. Like he may not believe that or recognize it, but it is hurting his own cause. Um, so overall, I had to point this out. You know, it's funny to me that Mike Pence is largely viewed as someone who is a responsible grown up within Trump's administration. And sure, even though we might disagree with him here and there, He's a more traditional Republican. No, he is a Trumpian Republican, and the party is far right. And I think that if you listen to him for five seconds in this debate, you'd see how extreme he really is in all of his views. He's so far to the right that he is getting into authoritarian territory to where you won't even commit to a peaceful transfer of power, the bare minimum of what we'd expect from an elected leader in a democratic republic. So, I mean... That was disgusting, it was egregious, but it uh, was what I expected from ghouls. Because, uh, you know, they, they don't want to give up power. And he basically told us that it's going to be a shit show. You know, if Trump wins, it's going to be four years worth of a shit show. And if Trump loses, then we better, you know, hold on to our seats because they're going to put us through hell until Trump leaves office. So the issue of climate change came up at the vice presidential debate. And let me just say, first of all, I'm thankful that this topic was even discussed. It's nice to see it come up because it's uh, it's kind of important, to say the least. Uh, having said that, though, this was not a great portion. Um, I think that Kamala Harris walked into some right wing traps that Mike Pence set. So, you know, uh, he was trying to press her on her support for the Green New Deal, being a co-sponsor of the Green New Deal. And she kind of tried to, you know, brush that aside. And then he tried to claim that Joe Biden supports a ban on fracking. And then she, you know, looked into the camera and said, Joe Biden does not support a ban on fracking. And listen, politics 101 is you do not run away from what's popular. And I think AOC made a really great point about this on Twitter. She said, you know, even though the Green New Deal has been lied about repeatedly with people saying that it's going to amount to a ban on air travel and cows, literally, conservatives have said this, it's still incredibly popular. So you don't run away from a popular policy. You don't. Now, when it comes to, you know, fracking, you should just be realistic and say, listen, our, our position on this is that we... You know, we're going to reduce fracking. We won't issue out as many permits for fracking. But the goal ultimately is to get off of our dependence on fossil fuels. Like, she kind of instinctively ran away from the good policy, which is never a good look. But I don't want to harp away on Kamala Harris's response, because even though I was disappointed ultimately with her, not entirely, but in, in some portions, Mike Pence shit the bed on this. He shit the bed. Because he couldn't even admit that climate change is real. He would not admit that climate change is real and it's man-made. And in 2020, if you cannot admit to man-made climate change, which is a fact, you are not a serious person. So this came up 
watched this exchange. This was uh, infuriating, and I wanted to slam my head against the desk watching this. Do you believe, as the scientific community has concluded, that man-made climate change has made wildfires bigger, hotter, and more deadly, and have made hurricanes wetter, slower, and more damaging? You have two minutes uninterrupted. Thank you, Susan. Well, first, I'm very proud of our record on the environment and on conservation. According to all of the best estimates, our, our air and land are cleaner than any time ever recorded. And our water is among the cleanest in the world. And just a little while ago, the president signed the Outdoors Act. It's the largest investment in our public lands and public parks in 100 years. So President Trump has made a commitment to conservation and to the environment. Now, with regard to climate change, the climate is changing. But the issue is, what's the cause and what do we do about it? President Trump has made it clear that we're going to continue to listen to the science. What exactly would be the stance of a Biden-Harris administration toward the Green New Deal? You have two minutes uninterrupted. Sure. So first of all, I will repeat, and the American people know, that Joe Biden will not ban fracking. That is a fact. That is a fact. I will repeat that Joe Biden has been very clear that he thinks about growing jobs, which is why he will not increase taxes for anyone who makes less than $400,000 a year. Joe Biden's economic plan, Moody's, which is a reputable Wall Street firm, has said will create 7 million more jobs than Donald Trump's. And part of those jobs that will be created by Joe Biden are going to be about clean energy and renewable energy. Because, you see, Joe understands that the west coast of our country is burning, including my home state of California. Joe sees what is happening on the Gulf states, which are being battered by storms. Joe has seen and talked with the farmers in Iowa, whose entire crops have been destroyed because of floods. And so Joe believes, again, in science. I'll tell you something, Susan. I served, when I first got to the Senate, on the committee that's responsible for the environment. Do you know this administration took the word science off the website and then took the phrase climate change off the website? This, we have seen a pattern with this administration, which is they don't believe in science. And Joe's plan is about saying we're going to deal with it, but we're also going to create jobs. Donald Trump, when asked about the wildfires in California, and, and the question was, you know, the science is telling us this. You know what Donald Trump said? Science doesn't know. So let's talk about who is prepared to lead our country over the course of the next four years on what is an existential threat to us as human beings. Joe is about saying we're going to invest that in renewable energy. It's going to be about the creation of millions of jobs. We will achieve net um, zero emissions by 2050, carbon neutral by 2035. Joe has a plan. This has been a lot of talk from the Trump administration, and really it has been to go backward instead of forward. We will also reenter the climate agreement with pride. Senator Harris just said that climate change is an existential threat. Vice President Pence, do you believe that climate change poses an existential threat? As I said, Susan, the climate is changing. We'll follow the science. But uh, once again, uh, Senator Harris uh, is denying the fact that they're going to raise taxes. He was asked whether or not he believes in climate change. He says, the climate is changing. 
Now, if you aren't savvy, I could see how you might interpret that as, oh, okay, so he does believe in climate change. No, that's doublespeak. What he's admitting here is, or not admitting here, is that the climate is changing because of human beings. So usually when conservatives use this talking point, which comes from the fossil fuel industry, mind you, what they're saying is, look, climate change is a naturally occurring phenomenon. The climate is always in a state of flux. It's constantly changing. And that's technically true. But what we're talking about with regard to climate change, specifically anthropogenic climate change, is the rate at which the climate is changing. It is not natural for our climate to change this fast. That's the issue here. And I've never seen a moderator on a debate stage call this out. Yes, the climate is changing. Sure, you admit that. But do you admit that it's changing at a faster rate because of human activity? And, you know, he gets off scot-free essentially because he says, well, the climate is changing. That doesn't mean that he believes in climate change. Because if you don't believe that climate change is man-made, functionally, you are a climate denier. That's a fact. Because the whole issue is whether or not it's man-made to them. Because if they can argue that it's not man-made, then the implication is, well, if it's not man-made, then there's nothing man can do about it. It's just natural. So we just keep polluting. We keep fracking. You know, we keep uh, destroying the environment in order to boost the economy. And, you know, it, it's it's dirty. It's, it's a deceptive trick, but that's what conservatives do. Now, Kamala Harris brought up how she believes it is an existential threat, and she's correct on this. Um... Mike Pence was asked, do you believe climate change is an existential threat? What is his answer? The climate's always changing. So he wouldn't say that it's an existential threat. So on a national debate stage, he just tacitly admitted that he is a climate change denier in the year 2020. This is not a debatable topic anymore. We are past the days where, you know, uh, it's acceptable and appropriate for the media to try to be neutral here and say, well, you know, some Republicans say climate change isn't real. Democrats say it is real. No, it's real because the scientists say it's real. I don't give a shit what fossil fuel funded Republican politicians say. Climate change is real and it is an existential threat. And because there's so much evidence, that's why Republicans have had to constantly move the goalpost. They would just outright deny climate change altogether by saying the climate isn't even changing. In fact, it's not getting warmer. It's getting cooler. Trump, in fact, still says that sometimes. But they keep saying, okay, well, climate change is real, but it's not man-made. So they keep moving closer and closer to kind of accepting that maybe there's something going on, but they'll never admit that it's anthropogenic and generated by humankind because they don't want to take action. So this was uh, egregious. I think that, you know, this doesn't really need much commentary. I don't have to say anything because the clip speaks for itself. The vice president is a climate change denier. And I get that we're accustomed to this. And it's something that, you know, it's not surprising because the Republican Party is a far right death cult. But we should never normalize this. We should never accept it because it's not acceptable. It's indefensible. If you deny climate change, you are not qualified to be anywhere in government. So after Donald Trump refused to commit to a peaceful transfer of power a couple of weeks ago at the vice presidential debate, Mike Pence was asked, will you commit to a peaceful transfer of power in the event you lose this election? And if you watched it, you'd know that he dodged that question. We did not get an answer from him. And 
If you don't get an answer to that very simple question, that means the answer is no. Now, this is alarming considering the fact that just a couple of weeks ago in an article for The Atlantic, Barton Gelman explains how Trump's legal team has a strategy for Donald Trump to potentially remain in power even if Joe Biden wins by basically appointing his own electors, where states are controlled by Republicans, to the Electoral College to overturn the results of certain states if it is in fact close. Now, since that article was published, the situation has worsened. And when I say the situation has worsened, I mean that in Donald Trump's political orientation, he is becoming more and more authoritarian. It's no longer just the way that he acts. It's what he is doing, using the powers that he has as president of the United States to undermine democracy. And what he's doing now is calling on his attorney general to indict his political opponent just weeks before an election. And as Jenny Fink of Newsweek explains, on Thursday, Trump told Fox Business's Maria Bartiromo that Biden and Obama spited his campaign and urged Attorney General Will Barr to indict them because we got plenty, you don't need any more. Without an indictment, Trump said, we'll get little satisfaction and he won't forget it. Now, first of all, understand that I think that when... People at his crowd chanted lock her up in 2016. That was problematic, sure, but I think that the media made a bigger deal out of it than it was in actuality. But now this is a different scenario because Donald Trump isn't just some political outsider trying to obtain power. Now he has power. So when he actually does directly call for one of his political opponents to be investigated or indicted for bogus reasons, that should scare everyone because this is what we see in authoritarian regimes. This is what dictators do. Now, what he's basically arguing is that, well, you know what? There's evidence that in 2016, the FBI spied on my campaign. Now, it is true that when Obama was in power, intelligence communities investigated his campaign to determine whether or not there was any Russian interference. We all know the story. But what Trump is basically arguing here is that, well, because... Under Obama's watch, even if Obama didn't explicitly direct the FBI to investigate my campaign, the fact that as president it happened, that's good enough. Indict them. Indict my political opponent because intelligence agencies spied on me. That's what he's arguing. Now, it's interesting to me that Trump's argument effectively is spying is unacceptable if it happens to me, but if we're spying on the American people... Doesn't matter, because as Ken Klippenstein of The Nation reports, federal agencies wiretapped the phones of protesters in Portland. On top of that, at the local level in San Francisco, police illegally spied on protesters. Now, Donald Trump's administration, as well as Obama's administration, wanted to prosecute Edward Snowden, who was a whistleblower who unveiled a massive unconstitutional and unlawful surveillance state being carried out by the NSA. Does Donald Trump want Obama and Biden to be indicted because of what the NSA did under their watch? No, because he's doing the same thing. He only is against spying if it happens to him. And really, he knows that there's not a lot here to work with because all of the things that he's accusing Obama for, if he believes that Obama and Biden can be indicted because the FBI surveils a campaign or anyone, you can be indicted for that too. But what Trump is trying to do here is use this story for purposes of political gain. He doesn't believe that Biden did anything that warrants an indictment. 
But if Biden were to be indicted just weeks before an election, that would definitely have an impact on the election. It could tip the scales in Donald Trump's favor. So this is a problem because he's using his institutional power as president, as an incumbent president who's seeking re-election to direct federal agencies explicitly to criminally investigate his main political opponent right before an election. And you know, it's not just his main political opponent. He retweeted a tweet from Judicial Watch that calls for Ilhan Omar to be investigated for some reason or the other. Now, I will say it's not inherently an abuse of power for, you know, a sitting president or administration to investigate anyone who has power or even who may be a political opponent if there's evidence that they are culpable of some wrongdoing. So, for example, when it was the case that Kelly Loeffler, Dianne Feinstein, and Jim Inhofe were busted for insider trading when they dumped their stocks after they were briefed on the severity of COVID-19 and they knew that the market would crash. That investigation was not controversial. The only controversial thing about that investigation is that it didn't result in any of them being indicted. But the point is, the investigation itself was legitimate. But when you just throw around, you know, let's investigate this person or that person under a dubious proposition, when you weaponize the legal system for your own political gain, that's where we start getting into some really murky territory, dictatorial territory. Republicans aren't even trying to hide the fact that they no longer favor democracy, but it's not just Donald Trump because Republican Senator Mike Lee tweeted, we're not a democracy. Now, my response to that is, all right, you know, I kind of agree to an extent, but let's change that. Let's make our system more democratic. Let's enhance our democracy. But that's not what he's saying. He is vocalizing his disdain for democracy because in another tweet, he adds, democracy isn't the objective. Liberty, peace, and prosperity are. We want the human condition to flourish. Rank democracy can thwart that. I'm going to repeat the last two sentences. We want the human condition to flourish. Rank democracy can thwart that. In other words, I'm not in favor of democracy unequivocally. I don't believe that democracy and further democratizing the United States of America is a good thing that we should do. You have a sitting United States senator openly expressing his reservations about democracy. And honestly, it's shocking, but it's not too surprising because the Republican Party for years now has been shifting further and further to the right. And you can only shift so far to the right until you arrive at authoritarianism. And we are now seeing them enter explicitly authoritarian territory where they're not even pretending to care about democracy. The facade is gone. They're just out right now attacking democracy. Now, it was always the case that Republicans did not like democracy because they've literally tried to suppress democracy in order to gain power for years. I mean, in Iowa, the Trump campaign just successfully got 100,000 ballots invalidated. And in Texas, the Republican governor, Greg Abbott, invalidated a decision that would have expanded the locations where voters can drop off absentee ballots. So now, because of what he did, there's just one drop-off location in each county, which means that if you don't have access to reliable transportation, you may not be able to drop off your ballot altogether. 
This is voter suppression. Now, we're not even talking about the 2018 election where Brian Kemp, as Georgia Secretary of State, used his power, his institutional power, to purge hundreds of thousands of voters from the rolls, mostly people of color, which ended up leading to him winning that election, which was effectively a stolen election. So the point is, Republicans have always had to or tried to suppress the vote because that's the only way that they can win elections. But what's changing now is that the facade is disappearing. It's going away. Now, you could make the case, well, look, maybe it's better that they just be upfront with us and tell us that they hate democracy. I would argue, no, the facade is better than no facade, even though it's disingenuous, because when you start explicitly saying maybe democracy isn't the best thing, that actually has a cultural impact. Their base picks up on that. And the Republican Party's base is indeed following them as they move closer and closer towards openly embracing authoritarianism, because as David Eggert and Ed White of AP reports, agents foiled a stunning plot to kidnap Michigan Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer, authorities said Thursday in announcing charges in an alleged scheme that involved months of planning and even rehearsals to snatch her from her vacation home. Six men were charged in federal court with conspiring to kidnap the governor in reaction to what they viewed as her uncontrolled power, according to a federal complaint. Separately, seven others were charged in state court under Michigan's anti-terrorism laws for allegedly targeting police and seeking a civil war. A few hours later, Whitmer pinned some blame on President Donald Trump, noting that he did not condemn white supremacists in last week's debate with Joe Biden and instead told a far-right group to stand back and stand by. Hate groups heard the president's words not as a rebuke, but as a rallying cry, as a call to action, Whitmer said. When our leaders speak, their words matter. They carry weight. The six men charged in federal court plotted for months, consulting and training with members of a group that federal authorities described as a militia and undertaking rehearsals in August and September, according to an FBI affidavit. They were arrested Wednesday night and face up to life in prison if convicted. Now, I should remind you that back in April, when far-right extremists protested Governor Whitmer's lockdown because of COVID-19, Donald Trump tweeted in all caps, liberate Michigan. And months later, we learn that domestic terrorists literally tried to do what Trump wanted them to do, quote unquote, liberate Michigan by overthrowing their state's democratically elected governor. Now, these terrorists are not representative of the average conservative, right? But what we are seeing is that over time, Gradually, conservatives, Republicans, mostly Donald Trump supporters, are losing faith in democracy. And they're not losing faith in democracy because, you know, uh, they've lost a lot of elections and they feel like they can never win. They're losing faith in democracy while their guy is in power, meaning that they think he doesn't have enough power. Therefore, maybe if he had more power, if he was a dictator things would be better. We can actually do what he wanted to do. Just a couple of years ago, one of Donald Trump's supporters said, you know, I never thought that I would want a dictator, but if there is going to be a dictatorship in America, I would want Trump to be that dictator. Never in my life did I think I would like to see a dictator, but if there's going to be one, I want it to be Trump. Now, I get what you're going to say. That's just one lady. That's a single anecdote, so it doesn't amount to much. Yes, but I would counter by saying, Go to YouTube, um, go to the comment section of any article where, you know, someone, a commentator or a journalist is talking about how problematic it is that Donald Trump refuses to commit to a peaceful transfer of power. And you see conservatives 
openly celebrating that fact, not thinking that what he's doing is undemocratic, but thinking that what he's doing actually is necessary to save democracy. So either they don't believe in democracy at all and they've lost faith in it and they openly want a dictatorship or they still at least buy into the idea that democracy is a good thing but they think that trump taking you know action to undermine democracy is actually better for the long-term health of democracy either way they've embraced undemocratic tactics and i've got to tell you this should worry you if you're not worried this should worry you because Democracy doesn't work if there's no buy-in. If people who exist in society no longer believe that democracy is a legitimate form of government, that democracy cannot survive. This is why in you know newly democratized regimes around the world, democracies are so fragile and they end up slipping back into authoritarian regimes or illiberal democracies because, you know, it takes time to get a democracy to the point where all of society believes in it. Like, it has to be ingrained culturally in a country in order for it to really have a lasting effect. But what we are seeing right now is the delegitimization of democracy. And I would argue that, sure, there are reasons to be dissatisfied with democracy. Because, you know, uh, we are seeing it be eroded over time with citizens united and certain things you know our institutions being eroded but if people in this country are just outright saying democracy may not cut it any longer that's a problem and what we are witnessing openly now is democracy becoming a partisan issue when democracy itself becomes a partisan issue only bad things can come afterwards. And it's not unusual for democracy to be a partisan issue. In some authoritarian regimes where they actually allow, you know, opposition parties to run, some of them do put democracy on the platform. Now, they know that that will never happen because they don't have the power, but it's a partisan issue. In developing countries, you know, democracy may be on the platform of an emerging political party. And I mean, look, I shouldn't have to explain why this is troublesome. We're seeing a party shift so far to the right that they don't even pretend to care about democracy. They're openly trying to undermine democracy. And it's not just Donald Trump and Mike Pence anymore. It's the Republican Party and their base who is doing this, who's embracing authoritarianism. And this is only the beginning. All right, folks, I have to talk about something that has been eating away at me since I watched the vice presidential debate. And even though I don't necessarily think that Kamala did a bad job, I think her performance was fine. She did what she needed to. And this debate overall isn't going to move the needle in either direction. But something that happened at that debate, I think that it demonstrates a bigger issue with Democrats. And it is that they always walk into the right wing traps that Republicans set for them every single time. They are easily duped by a Republican who speaks confidently and uses a specific tone to imply that something they support or don't support is inherently wrong. So, for example, at the debate, fracking came up and Mike Pence somehow put Kamala Harris on the defensive because he claimed she wants to ban fracking. Now, wanting to ban fracking isn't just the popular position. It's the right position to have 
given that we are facing climate catastrophe in 10 years, according to the IBCC, if we don't take action. So banning fracking is right. But what did Kamala Harris do when Mike Pence said, you guys want to ban fracking? She immediately bought into that right-wing frame and went on the defensive when Mike Pence should be the one on the defensive. She argued, we don't want to ban fracking. He then says, you support the Green New Deal. No, Joe Biden doesn't support the Green New Deal. This is not how you play politics, and this is why Republicans, in spite of having a platform that is deeply unpopular, according to public opinion polls, they still get so many political and electoral victories. It's because of things like this. Now, as AOC pointed out on Twitter, fracking is bad, actually. Yeah. Instead of saying, I don't want to ban fracking and getting defensive, it's okay to say fracking is bad, actually. In fact, why does Kamala Harris automatically have to be the one to defend herself, even if they don't want to ban fracking? I wish that they did. But why is she playing defense when it should be Mike Pence who's playing defense? But instead, he was playing offense. The issue of climate change came up, and I'm thankful that it was debated on a national platform, but Mike Pence doesn't even believe in anthropogenic climate change. There shouldn't be a single moment on that subject where he's playing offense. He should be the one playing defense the entire time. Kamala Harris needed to replicate the strategy that he was using, emulate his tone and say, Vice President, you don't even believe that climate change is real. Vice President, you don't even want to ban fracking when it's incredibly popular. Vice President, you don't even support a Green New Deal when the overwhelming majority of Americans support it in spite of the misinformation that your party has been spreading about it. We have 10 years left to act. Explain to the American people why you don't want to do anything about climate change, why you don't want there to be a future for the viewers' grandchildren and their children. Explain yourself. But instead, she explained herself. And it's because Democrats are horrible at politics. Now, again, I don't believe that Kamala Harris lost this debate. I don't believe her performance was poor. But this was one of the lowlights with regard to her performance, aside from her kind of fumbling when she wouldn't answer the question about Supreme Court backing. But it's not just good policy to support a ban on fracking. It's good politics. Now, Democratic Party strategists would probably disagree with that statement and say, look, if you want to win this election, if you want to make sure we defeat Donald Trump, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden cannot support an outright ban on fracking. Take what you get. They want to reduce the number of permits issued to frackers. Except in Pennsylvania, it's not political suicide, for example, to want to ban fracking because polls show that a ban on fracking is actually popular contrary to popular belief. Now, as David Sirota of Jacobin explains, Kamala Harris has previously said she supports a ban on hydraulic fracking, but last night she used the vice presidential debate to reiterate Joe Biden's promise that a Biden-Harris administration would not move to halt the fossil fuel extraction technique, even as scientists warn that it is a driver of climate change. This pledge, made while Harris's own state is experiencing a climate-intensified gigafire, has been depicted by national reporters as savvy and smart politics 
politics for a Democratic ticket that supposedly must embrace fracking in order to win the crucial swing state of Pennsylvania. There's just one problem with that storyline. It isn't substantiated by empirical data. Indeed, the idea that a fracking ban is political poison in Pennsylvania is a fantastical tale fabricated by a national press corps that refuses to let public opinion data get in the way of fossil fuel propaganda and a manufactured narrative. A January poll of Pennsylvania voters from Franklin and Marshall University found that more believe the environmental risks, 49%, of natural gas drilling outweigh the economic benefits than believe the economic benefits outweigh the environmental risks at 38%. The same poll found that more registered voters, 48%, favor a ban on hydraulic fracking than oppose it at 39%. In August, CBSU Gov poll found that 52% of Pennsylvania voters support a fracking ban. That includes not only a big majority of Democratic voters, but also strong majorities among traditional swing voters. 62% of self-identified moderate voters and 55% of registered independent voters support a ban. A separate August survey by the Global Strategy Group and Climate Power 2020 found that 50% of Pennsylvania voters have an unfavorable view of the fracking industry, while 32% have a favorable view, with a large majority supporting a phase-out of fracking. The numbers were even worse for fracking industry CEOs, who were viewed favorably by 21% of Pennsylvania voters and unfavorably by 53% of voters. The same survey found large majority supporting tough restrictions on fracking and phasing all of it out in the future. So, fracking is unpopular, even in states like Pennsylvania. So, that was a very, very huge missed opportunity. And I, I'm sitting here, like, scratching my head, trying to figure out how Kamala thinks this is a good idea. But, like, I don't want to just harp away on Kamala Harris, because it's not just her who does this. At the first presidential debate, we saw Joe Biden run away from socialized health care. That big boogie boogeyman that Donald Trump invoked. And Joe Biden was so afraid to even sound remotely progressive on the issue of healthcare reform, he wouldn't even commit to a public option. Now, he claims that that's part of his platform, but at that debate, he says, look, I want to expand the Affordable Care Act. And I think he referenced the public option, but what he explained did not sound like a public option. So he was so afraid to say, I support a public option when a public option is incredibly popular. Now, this is not the right policy. The correct policy is socialized insurance, contrary to popular belief. And it's not a bad thing to say that because Medicare for all is very popular. So rather than saying, oh, of course, I don't support socialized medicine. Why aren't Democrats challenging Donald Trump? Why don't you support socialized insurance? What do you say to the 68,000 Americans who die every single year because they don't have health insurance? And that was before COVID-19, so the number is probably larger now. What do you say, say to them? What's your answer? Why don't you have a healthcare plan? Why is it that Democrats always play defense but never play offense? Now, we know the answer to that. It's because, you know, the health industry was betting on Joe Biden to uh, save the country, quote-unquote, save the country from Bernie Sanders giving us Medicare for All. So we know that his donors won't allow him to support Medicare for All. But even if you support your half-measure in a public option, you won't even like embrace that on stage. You run away from that. It's just poor strategy. And look, I'll be fair and even criticize Bernie Sanders because it's not just popular policies that you shouldn't run away from. You shouldn't run away from good policy altogether. So on the issue of reparations at the beginning of the Democratic Party primaries, you know, Bernie Sanders got caught up on this. He wouldn't necessarily give us a clear answer when it comes to reparations because 
he didn't support it because, you know, I don't know if that was something that he just genuinely was against or he viewed it as deeply unpopular because back in 2015 or 2016, he said it was divisive. But here's the thing. If you make the case to the American people, oftentimes they will be receptive to that. In the same way that Bernie Sanders made Medicare for All popular, he could have popularized reparations because I think that if Americans understand what's at stake and why the wealth gap between black Americans and white Americans has to be closed and it's owed to them legally and morally, I think that people would be inclined to listen. But because we're so afraid about what the Republicans are going to say, because we never know how to play offense, we always have to try to anticipate what Republicans are going to say when that's not good politics. Republicans' policies are deeply, deeply unpopular. I mean, back in 2017 and 2018, when they were trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act, Republicans proposed their own, I don't even know what to call it, it was like a pseudo-healthcare reform bill that was garbage, and it had like a 10 to 15% approval rating, if I'm remembering correctly. Did they run away from that? No. Even though they lost that battle, ultimately, they were firmly committed to that plan. They never once ran away from it. All Republicans were disciplined. And, you know, they tried to get Democrats to explain why they didn't support their shitty plan. And this is what you have to do. Even if your plan is a bad plan, uh, like it's not popular, you never run away from what you propose because it makes you look weak. And that's why Republicans are so effective because, you know, at that debate with Mike Pence, the way he talked about certain policies, he made it seem as if everyone is Republican. Everyone agrees with the conservative position. Now, Americans may self-identify as conservatives, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are conservative in practice because by and large, when you look at the issues individually, progressive policies are incredibly popular. But the way that Mike Pence spoke at that vice presidential debate, he made it seem as if it's a no-brainer to support the conservative position. When, I mean, abortion, for example, even if Americans wouldn't get an abortion themselves, they admit that it is a necessity to have abortion be legal and safe. Because I think that Americans are smart enough to realize that just banning abortion outright, that's not going to stop abortions. You're just going to uh, lead to a situation where we're seeing more unsafe, illegal abortions. So, I mean, don't be afraid to explain your position and educate people, but never run away from your position. And that's what Democrats have to get through their heads. Never, ever run away from your position. And that's what I want to say about this, because it's so frustrating that we live in a situation where there's so much potential, Americans are yearning for progressive policies, and even the half measures, Democrats won't stick by them, they'll run away from them. And it's just, it's so frustrating to me. Stop playing defense. Put Republicans on offense. Replicate the tactics that they use at debates. You know, maybe it's just me, but has anyone else noticed that all of a sudden the mainstream media, they really love Bernie Sanders now that he doesn't pose a threat to the ruling class. Now that he's no longer running for president, MSNBC can't get enough of him. They love him. He's great for ratings, so let's bring him on every single week. I mean, <laughs> compare this to their treatment of him during the primaries, and you'd think he was the worst person in America, perhaps worse than Donald Trump. But now all of a sudden... He's great because he doesn't pose a threat to the status quo anymore. The threat has been neutralized. 
And it's so frustrating. And I want you to take note of this and remember this because it shows you how the media tries to manufacture consent and they try to push certain candidates and get a particular outcome. This isn't objective, non-biased coverage. They had an agenda. They just didn't admit it. Um, but, you know, I don't want to harp away on that angle. I want to talk about Bernie Sanders because he had an interview in MSNBC and he really is incredibly useful in attacking Donald Trump because it's not the same tired talking points that we see from the Democratic Party establishment. I mean, sure, Bernie Sanders is known to repeat himself, but he has a way of criticizing Donald Trump where I think it's going to land. And Joe Biden is doing well against Donald Trump, not because I think he's running a good campaign, contrary to um, what most people believe. I don't think Joe Biden is running a particularly good campaign, but this is an anti-Trump election, clearly, which is why Joe Biden is doing really well. People are turned off by Donald Trump. Now, I will say that, you know, I had to take a little bit of a break from Bernie Sanders at Bernie burnout, if you will, because my frustration and even my anger with Bernie Sanders after he dropped out, it it felt like a surrender. It felt like he was giving up. And that took a long time for me to get over. And I'm starting to get away from those feelings. They're starting to dissipate. And now I'm just feeling like there's this hole inside of me. And whenever I see Bernie talk, I imagine what could have been. Like it wouldn't have been a utopia if he was elected. But the situation in this country would have been just completely different. And again, I know this sounds like, you know, I'm crying over spilled milk, but just like listen to Bernie Sanders responding to a simple thing that he was asked about Donald Trump dodging this debate. And look at how charismatic he is at making fun of Donald Trump. Senator, we have a lot we want to cover, but we've got to get to that breaking news. Your reaction to President Trump now refusing to participate in a virtual debate, saying it's a waste of his oh. time. But Stephanie, that was 12 seconds ago, right? He may have changed his mind by then. I, I mean, I I empathize with Biden. You know, you don't know what Trump is going to do. He lies all of the time. He changes his mind all of the time. He's going to sit down and negotiate a stimulus bill. He's not going to negotiate. He'll be in the debate. He won't be in the debate. But, you know, the truth is this is somebody who has COVID-19. Uh, we have no idea what's going on in the White House, uh, how he is feeling. Uh, they lie about that as well. Uh, you know, if I were in Biden's position, and I think the commission, the election commission is right, I, I don't know that I would want to be in the room with him. So I think a virtual debate is appropriate. Uh, Trump did not do well in the last debate. So, you know, he may not want to debate again. Who knows? That was fantastic. Trump will change his mind, most likely. So, you know, when I learned that Trump decided to uh, not go to the next debate because it's virtual, uh, part of that is me thinking that he doesn't want to do any more damage because that first debate was such a train wreck. I mean, a Boston Herald poll uh, put Joe Biden 21 points over Trump nationally. I mean, you don't want to repeat that. So if you realize that you're turning off voters by speaking, you don't attend that debate. But maybe Trump isn't thinking strategically like that because he still won't shut the fuck up but either way like the way that bernie sanders responded to that well i mean that was 12 seconds ago don't worry he'll change his mind it's just 
it's personable. Like that's what the average American thinks. And that's not to say that Joe Biden hasn't had his moments because at that first debate when he clowned on Donald Trump for wanting to inject bleach, I thought that that landed. That was great. But Bernie Sanders just has a way of speaking to people that is so genuine and authentic. And I think it lands. And he really is able to build this case against Donald Trump. That is common sense. Like I, I was talking about in a different segment, uh, how, you know, Mike Pence, the way that he spoke at that vice presidential debate, like the way that he said things, he made it seem as if, you know, the conservative position is inherently the best position. And if you don't agree with the conservative position, then you better defend yourself and explain why you don't agree with the conservative position. And even though Bernie Sanders in, is imperfect here, he he makes it seem as if, you know, what he supports is common sense and whoever doesn't support it needs to explain themselves. Now, he doesn't always do this, but I mean, just look at what he said about healthcare. He's not even running for president, but here he is explaining how Trump's COVID-19 diagnosis and the subsequent treatment that he received at Walter Reed Medical Center demonstrates why we need Medicare for all. The president's message to the American people earlier this week is don't let COVID dominate your life. The president also received top medical treatment at a 100% government-funded facility. That same care would cost the average American anywhere between sixty and $100,000. What do you have to say to that? Well, what I have to say about that, I don't begrudge the president of the United States getting the health care that he needs when he is seriously ill. Uh, but I do very much resent the fact that we are the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care to all people as a human right. All right. The kind of care that Trump got is good. That is the kind of care that every American should get. And that is why I am a strong advocate for a Medicare for all single payer system, which means you go into any doctor's office, you go into any hospital, you do not take out your wallet, you do not take out your credit card. It is 100 percent publicly funded, available to all, whether you are rich or whether you're poor. But I think, Stephanie, this whole COVID-19 crisis above and beyond Trump's illness tells us how dysfunctional the current system is. Millions and millions of people have lost their health care because they have lost their job. And what I think the American people understand is that health care is a human right, not a job benefit, not a privilege. All of us, rich, poor, old, young, are entitled to health care, whether we're working or whether we are not. And the momentum for a Medicare for all, single payer system is growing stronger every single day. We should not be paying twice as much per capita as our neighbors in are uninsured or underinsured, and we pay by far the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs. The American people know that. Now, that to me was brilliant. Now, I think about at that first presidential debate, which was a clusterfuck, but when, you know, uh, Donald Trump said, you support socialized medicine. Your party does, Joe Biden. Joe Biden ran away from that, and he wouldn't even, you know, explicitly endorse the public option, which he supposedly supports. And I think, you know, what would Bernie Sanders have done? Bernie Sanders would have been a lot more successful in that situation because Bernie Sanders would not have run away from Medicare for All. In fact, he would have gotten Donald Trump to explain why he doesn't support Medicare for All. Like, you always want to make sure that you're not playing offense. You want to make your opponent play defense. And when it comes to something like Medicare for All that's overwhelmingly popular, where a plurality of Republicans support that policy, I mean, if you are the one playing defense, you've lost. You've already lost. It doesn't matter 
how popular the position that you're taking is. So, like, I think about the differences, and Bernie Sanders would have not only been able to defeat Donald Trump thoroughly, but he would have been able to effectively build a large consensus around his agenda because he makes it seem as if these things are just common sense. Now, uh, one more clip I want to play before I give you the takeaway uh, about the stimulus. Let's shift gears to the latest on coronavirus relief stimulus. The president has closed the door on a large comprehensive stimulus package, but he did ask Congress to pass a standalone airline relief bill. Speaker Pelosi seems open to that. While the 50,000 jobs in the airline industry are hugely important, what do you think about the fact that we could see a separate carve out for the airline industry that has huge lobbying efforts, huge influence in Washington and nothing for mom and pops shops that are closing every single day? We've lost over 100,000 small businesses already. It's unbelievable. And I think, you know, every day we get overwhelmed by some crazy thing that Trump says and we all focus on that. But your point is well taken. I, in my state of Vermont and all over this country, small businesses have shut and many of them are not going to reopen. Again, millions of people have lost their jobs. In the wealthiest country on earth, you got folks today who have lost their health care. They are worried about being evicted. They are worried about putting food on the table for their kids. So I, you know, the truth is that the House of Representatives, I think four months ago now, did the right thing. They passed a comprehensive bill, including protecting workers in the airline industry, which we have got to do. But we have to protect small businesses. We have to protect those workers who have lost their jobs by extending that $600 a week supplement to unemployment that was previously the case. This matters because Bernie Sanders is always able to tap in to what the average American is thinking. He's not out of touch. Now, I will give Joe Biden and Kamala Harris credit because they have a lot more populist rhetoric that they use than Hillary Clinton did in 2016. So I think they're running a better campaign than Hillary Clinton. But nobody has perfected the art of populism and speaking to the specific needs of Americans, average Americans, working class Americans, Americans who own small businesses than Bernie Sanders. He's just it's an art to him. And he's just so much more effective at promoting a working class agenda than Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Now, the point of bringing this up is not to say, man, think of how amazing it would have been, because of course, I, I think about that all the time. Imagine what could have been if Bernie was the nominee. He would have certainly won. And if he was president, ugh, we could accomplish so much. But the point of this is Bernie Sanders is no longer going to be president. But I want to make this video because Bernie Sanders isn't going to be the last progressive to ever run. And if you ever want to win, copy Bernie Sanders. Copy the rhetoric that he uses. Speak to specific policies that Bernie Sanders advocates for. I mean, going back to the vice presidential debate, there's no reason for Kamala Harris to get defensive when Mike Pence says you support the Green New Deal. There's no reason for her to get defensive when Mike Pence says you support a ban on fracking. They don't support a ban on fracking. But if people think that you support a ban on fracking, that helps you. I mean, there's a reason why Donald Trump's attack that, you know, Biden is far left and being controlled by the far left hasn't worked. It's because the quote unquote far left has very, very popular ideas. So if that were Bernie or Nina Turner at that debate against Mike Pence, what would they have done? 
well, I can only imagine that they wouldn't have run away from a ban on fracking. But let's say, you know, hypothetically, they took Biden's approach where he doesn't support an outright ban on fracking, but he claims he's not going to issue as many permits to frackers. Will you explain, listen, fracking in and of itself is not something that I'm going to ban, but I'm going to reduce the number of fracking and I would like to ideally gradually phase it out because this is contributing to climate change. And if we want a future, we have to stop polluting the planet for personal gain and profit. We, we have to stop. Why aren't you advocating for phasing out fracking? Do you want us to frack in your backyard? Would you drink the water in a fracked neighborhood where it's poisoned? Do you understand that fracking causes earthquakes? Never be afraid to take the time to explain yourself. You know, single-payer Medicare for All has always been something that Democrats have supported, but the reason why we're talking about it so much now is because Bernie Sanders popularized it, and he popularized it by explaining what this means for people in a real concrete way. It means that you're going to be able to go to any doctor you want to and that care is going to be free at the point of service you'll get the same quality care that members of congress get that rich people get because he explained that so well now the american people they support medicare for all so democrats have got to acknowledge that it's not bad to explain yourself copy what bernie sanders is doing learn from him even though he lost and he's not the democratic party's nominee People agree with him. Exit polls during the Democratic Party primary show that people want Medicare for all. So the way that he has sold us on these policies is what Democrats have to do if they ever want to win elections. But I don't just want them to copy the rhetoric because Joe Biden has copied some of the rhetoric, at least when it comes to healthcare. He says that healthcare is a right when that's not true because you don't support Medicare for all. But don't just copy the rhetoric, copy the fucking policy and adopt the policy. Because if you truly want power and you want to win, being open to new ideas and populist policies is the way to do that. So, you know, if Bernie Sanders isn't going to be the leader of the Democratic Party, then I think that they can learn from him. Use the influence that he has to grow so the party can defeat Republicans. Hi, folks. I'm here with Liam O'Mara, who is running in California's 42nd Congressional District. He has advanced to the general election after uh, making it into the top two back in March, and he is here to talk about his campaign. Liam, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, so you have such an interesting background. So you are a professor of Middle East history, and you were running against a Republican named Ken Calvert. I've never heard of him, and there's a reason for that. Um, before coming on, you described him as a ghost, so I want to get to all of that, but first, let us know who you are and why you decided to run for Congress. Oh, let's see. Uh, so, <clears throat> kind of a big one. Um, the short answer to that um, is I um, I have a diverse background. Um, I come from a solidly working-class family. I'm actually the first person in my family with a college degree. And I didn't go to college right away. I did not expect to. In fact, I didn't even take the SATs in high school. Um, had no saw no possibility of going to college. And at age 30, I found a way to jump into it. So after that, I mean, I'd, I'd had experience already working as a, a fourth-generation longshoreman in the port of L.A. Um, I worked as a fry cook. Um, I drove trucks. I carried a Class A driver's license for 20 years. But I, uh, I jumped into college and then went straight through to a Ph.D., so for the last dozen years, um, I've been teaching uh, at, uh, at colleges, and um, I genuinely love that as a job. 
uh, because I feel like I'm giving something back and engaging with people. But I, I have to look my students in the eyes and tell them things are screwed for you, that, that things are going downhill. After 40 years of, of decline in the real economy under neoliberalism, despite all the media lying about the economy, and we can talk about that if you want. But the, the real economy has been shrinking steadily for 40 years. My generation is the first one in American history not to do better than the one before. The millennials are worse off than me. The Gen Z is worse off than the millennials. We are in steady decline as a society. And frankly, I'm pissed. And I'm pissed not only as a worker, um, I'm pissed as someone who understands why this is happening and wants to shake things up and get people talking about the real issues again so we can push back against it. Yeah, I like that you said that um, because – if you're not pissed right now, then I feel like you're not paying attention. And I get that that's kind of a cliche, but it really is true. There's so much going on. There's so much at stake. And I think that everyone in their own way is kind of stepping up. And for you to be like the first member of your family to go to college, that's that's incredible. And now, you know, for me, I, I was also the same person, same in my family, the first to go to college. And, you know, for you now to want to run for Congress, um, it's awesome to see that, you know, you're willing to step up and fight because that really is difficult. Like to run for Congress is, it's a self-sacrifice I feel like. And so anyone who's running, I think is really, they're doing a lot, especially if you're running for the right reasons and you really are. So you have a really robust platform. You were endorsed by Andrew Yang, Ted Liu. Um, you kind of check all of the boxes. So if you like are a regular viewer of the Humanist Report, then I think that you are like the ideal candidate. You explain Medicare for all so well. And I love that, like to find a candidate that goes beyond just the generic endorsement of Medicare for all is very valuable because this is such a complex topic and really winning hearts and minds is crucial to me. So, you know, when it comes to Medicare for all, how would you, you know, deter people from being afraid of this socialist boogeyman? Like, how do you explain this to constituents? Yeah, so first off, there's um, there are two things um, about my immediate background that really help with dealing with issues like this. Um, for one thing, I'm a policy wonk by nature. If I want to talk about an issue, I dive into it. I read stacks of books. I mean, I, I mean, the joke about me is, I mean, my house is nothing but cats and books. I have 34 <laughs> bookcases and three cats wandering around. So um, I'm pretty much a nerd about that stuff. But I also, for a living, explain complex ideas to people in a way that's that's useful. So I'm, I'm accustomed to like breaking things down and, and putting them across. And I've tried to bring that into the campaign. And I think, again, um, myself having working roots and not being a particularly pretentious ivory tower type, I can just sit there over beers and chat about these issues and try to break them down for people. I actually have a, a number of people that have joined the campaign as, as major supporters who had been Republicans their whole lives and just sat down with me and like, dude, I'm a Democrat. Like, this makes, makes sense. Right. And. For Medicare, it's it's tricky because our incumbent actually is running ads, calling it a government takeover of healthcare, which is frankly bullshit. It's not at all. Um, Medicare actually gives you more consumer choice and more freedom, far more so than we have now. The key issue that you you can uh, have to explain to people. I mean, there's a few things you can come at it with uh, shifts in the framing. Because people, especially coming from like the, the left or the liberal perspective on things like Medicare, they'll, they'll approach it from a moral standpoint. We need to insure everyone. It's just a crime that people are going without insurance. And Republicans just don't give a damn. It, it doesn't matter to them. But what could matter are, are the issues of freedom and cost. 
uh, if you tell somebody, they, say for example, um, a lot of people get their employer insurance from their employer, right? Now, when they get the job, they get told this is your salary and these are your benefits. Together, that's a compensation package. If we write this legislation correctly, then what happens when the employer is no longer paying seventeen thousand dollars a year for your insurance? And instead paying uh, fifteen hundred or, or two grand or something like that in to an overall kitty, and then you're paying a little bit in. If you're paying like fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars a year there, there's an extra twelve or thirteen grand just sitting around. That's your money. It's part of your compensation package. Medicare for all would be the largest raise in pay for the middle class in more than a generation. You tell somebody that you're going to get to keep an extra twelve grand of your own money, and you perk. Uh, you, you pique a, a conservative's a interest. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you go on to explain that, well, this what, this would leave all the doctors still private, all the healthcare providers are still private, they're all still doing their own thing, but you can now go to any of them. So uh, I'd be like, uh, Mike's like, hey, Liam, uh, you got to check out this this, this this doctor I've got. He's, he's fantastic. And I'm like, well, he's out of network. I, I can't go. And I don't have that ability now because there are all these uh, limited networks, right? And if you take that away and it's a single insurance provider, not only do I have the freedom to go anywhere and seek any care at all, you write it again such that it just it's just rubber stamping things. So the person making the decisions about your health care are you and your physician, period. I, it, it infuriated me. Uh, sorry, I'm rambling a bit here, but it infuriated me in 2008 to hear like um, people like Sarah Palin and the right like freaking out about – the ACA, like, oh, death panels, they'll decide to kill grandma. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? We already have death panels. They're called for-profit insurance companies, and they're going to look at, well, it, this test is going to cost me $10,000. There's no way I'm giving him that MRI. This guy can just die of brain cancer. I don't care. They make those decisions already. If you take the profit motive out, then the only choice there really is the physician's choice. You don't have to make money off of somebody. So it's not a government takeover of healthcare; it's replacing the corrupt insurance industry, which is a, a parasitic middleman that does nothing for anybody. No one loves their insurance. They love their provider and the ability to go to their provider. You give them a gold-plated insurance plan uh, from, from the state, and it does the same thing. And just in, the last point I'd make on this that I, I bring up in the area too is the question of cost. And from there, you can make a simple actuarial argument. You've got a whole bunch of different insurance companies, each with X number of people in them, and you have to balance out the sicker with the healthier. So you have to raise the, the rates higher on the, the healthier people in order to make up for the cost for the sicker people, right? Put everyone in the same risk pool. Everyone's in the same risk pool. That lowers the cost massively for the entire country. So we, we, when people are throwing out this crap about like, how do we afford Medicare for all – I'm just like, it's a simple arithmetic issue. We're already paying twice as much as it would cost. Like, we're already paying for it. We're just not getting it. Yeah, and I feel like if you explain this to someone who doesn't know about all of this, there's like this light bulb moment that goes off because I've convinced many people just in my personal life to support Medicare for all. My mom has done that, and she's not necessarily someone who follows politics as closely as I do, but it's just such a common sense position, and we shouldn't even have to really further make our case because I feel like we've already won the argument and most Americans agree with us, but just to like further educate people about this, I think it really is important, and people have to understand that we're missing out. Like In comparison with other developed countries, 
we are getting a really raw deal. And that's so unfair. It should make everyone angry. Every single time they pay their insurance bill to a private insurance company, they should be mad. I am. And I think that we've gotten people to wake up. It's just a matter of really driving, you know, public opinion even further towards, you know, where we are. So I feel like, you know, you're a great candidate at doing something like this, like explaining to people why the Republican Party, they don't even have a plan. I mean, you know, Democrats, they don't support Medicare for all for the most part. I think that's starting to change in the House, but not necessarily with senators. But in your district, you are running against a Republican. His name is Ken Calvert. So I want to know about him because I'm sure that you are convincing people who you talk to constituents as much as you can during a pandemic. But uh, how close is this district to flipping? And what's been the success rate of converting people who have been supporting this individual? Because I've never heard of him. And you've described him as a ghost. And I find that interesting. He just seems like a seat warmer in Congress. He's not doing anything. So can you talk about him? Yeah, honestly, the it's infuriating how difficult it is to get national attention on this district. And one of the things that I've worked hardest to do during this run is to raise the national profile of the district because this is difficult and it really complicates the fundraising and a lot of districts that are similarly purple demographically you can easily raise a million dollars for an uh for an opponent to go against and take out one of these republicans here everyone just assumes it's going to stay safely republican it has a republican voting history for calvert at least but also relatively low turnout and it's absolutely purple demographically. The key issue is getting somebody who can appeal to those voters, to bring in the people who don't normally vote, and then to pick up those swing voters. The fact that a lot of people voted for Trump because he was running as a populist helps in this area. I mean, the answer to a right populist is a left populist. I'm talking about kitchen table economics, working class issues, and that picks up a lot of support. Uh, Calvert, on the other hand, doesn't really run on his record, doesn't offer solutions to anything. He's like a no man. His, uh, his ad, and actually he's taken our campaign um, a lot more seriously than really any challenger he's had in, in ages. Um, he ran, he, he did uh, mailers attacking me in the primary, mailers attacking me in the, in the general here with some of the most hyperbolic claims. But like he, in the primary it was funny, like it was like a columns of like yes and no and like red and green and like they, no one told him like red light, green light because he put me in the yes and him in the no for red. <laughs> uh, but it was like, yeah, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, impeachment of Trump. Uh, um, and uh, But he offers no solutions of his own. It's always just no, no, no. The only thing he's running on right now is the police. He's running on manipulating fear that somehow uh, votes for Democrats or a vote for like anarchy and chaos. And he's calling me like he's literally calling me a terrorist, you know, that I want like to burn Riverside to the ground and just, just the most crazy hyperbolic stuff. But he doesn't actually do anything. In 28 years in the House, he has never chaired a committee. Uh, he, he only chair. He, he's uh, often chairs like um, subcommittees and appropriations, and largely because his single biggest donors are all in the military-industrial complex. His biggest donor is Lockheed Martin. He takes in just scads of cash from defense contractors, so of course he's voted for every single use of force, and for a whole range of deeply authoritarian stuff like um, warrantless wiretapping of American citizens. I mean, just crazy stuff. But he doesn't actually do anything to help the economy out here. In fact, quite the opposite. His background before he got into Congress was real estate. And he has continued to make millions in Congress by 
knowing something was going to be done by the government, buying a chunk of land and then flipping it while doing nothing to it, which is just crazy. I mean, it's deeply corrupt. But he makes all kinds of cash off of, of real estate. So, of course, he's very cozy with, with housing developments out here. My community is filled with my, my district is filled with bedroom communities, you know, commuters that come out of like L.A. and Orange County because we're right across the mountains from L.A. and Orange County. So the land is a bit cheaper out here and people move out here and then commute, right? So the traffic goes to the roof. We have the worst air quality in the state because of the amount of traffic that, that pours in there with more than a third of the population having to commute out for work. And his big solution is to every now and then secure a little bit of cash as a rider for like a new off-ramp. Look, I'm helping with traffic. I built a new off-ramp. Meanwhile, he's benefiting from all the housing developments that come in. It's just, it's just inertia that keeps him in. It's just the amount of money he can take in. He's 98% funded by corporations. That's insane. And really, you know, to sit there and not do anything, to just effectively occupy that seat and still get elected, to be in Congress for 28 years. I mean, this is why Congress has such a high disapproval rate. It's because of people like him. I mean, I'm sure he's not the only ghost. There's a lot of people like that who are just basically warming that seat. But it's time for mm -hmm. people to wake up and stop just voting out of complacency. I mean, voting in and of itself is important because we have such a low turnout in this country. But, you know, if you're voting, like, make that count. And that's what I think is really important about all of these types of grassroots-funded campaigns like yours because you all really focus on getting out new voters who haven't voted. You mobilize people who stay home because they've never been, never been talked to. Like, I, I speak with candidates, and I'm sure this is true for you as well, who uh, people have told them, you're the first candidate who's ever contacted me in my entire life right. because nobody reaches out to me. The incumbent doesn't reach out to me. They don't hold town halls. I don't know what I need. I mean, a lot of the issues that we saw was with the CARES Act. A lot of small businesses didn't know how to get access to the loans that were passed with that law. And lawmakers theoretically should be helping them with that to boast about what they just did delivered to their constituents and you see nothing. So right. it's, it's a combination of corruption but also laziness, mostly corruption, I think, but l laziness as well. And people like Calvert, they yeah, just, sure. they're part of the problem. And it's nice to see him actually a little bit afraid. But to call you a terrorist, I mean, you know, if we thought that Trump was being hyperbolic in calling, you know, Joe Biden, basically a conservative, a socialist, to call you a terrorist is like, that's so beyond the pale that I don't know how they make these types of arguments with a straight face. And I don't know who this appeals to. Like the people in this district, there's no way that that's resonating with them. Like, ha have you seen anything well, with yeah, regard to I that? Mean, there is, there is a, it, it's not a, it's not a majority for sure, it, but it, there is a pretty nativist um, and relatively extreme subset of the population that he's appealing to with some pretty bold dog whistles. Yeah, I mean, when and the one where he called me, a, well, he's done it more than once, but um, one one where he called me a, a terrorist, he actually tied me to um, a local uh, professor here who works at uh, UC Riverside, Reza Aslan, who's a, a well-known scholar of religion, and literally like me, a scholar who studies these ideas, and but because he has a Muslim name. We're both violent extremists who want to destroy the country, and um, you know, I, you should be terrified that I know people like this. Are, are you kidding me? I mean, it just. But there are people who are genuinely afraid of that. We have, we have, um, you know, there were um, 
there was a, a when we had uh, the Black Lives Matter stuff was really starting to show up, and there was a number of rallies in the area. One of them, this is relatively small, but there was a small rally in um, in the northern part of the district in Norco, and people were just out marching with peaceful signs, and a bunch of guys showed up in uh, in in SS T-shirts, you know, like literally like the. Um, uh, yeah, the, the Nazi, yeah. like white supremacist type stuff, and sort of like pushing people and, you know, trying to intimidate them. That's a part of his base. It's not all of it. It's 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 not even a big part of it, but it is a part of his base. And he throws them red meat every now and then in order to keep them excited and willing to vote in the same way that Trump does. Hmm. Trump depends upon the votes of white supremacists, which is why he's so loath to call them out. Um, because, you know, even though it's not clearly not majority of the country, they are voting for him. Mm-hmm. So it is a it is a fact. Yeah, and I'm sure that they're using the the fact that you're a college professor as part of their narrative because like over, over the past like half decade they've been trying to demonize college students for being SJWs and all these liberal professors and there's Prager U right. to try to like deconvert all of these people who are going to college and getting radicalized apparently. So I mean it's like they, they create this narrative but it's not founded in reality and it, it sucks that it still works on some people, not everyone as you said, but the fact that it has any legs whatsoever, uh, at least legs to convince people, that is a little bit soul crushing, I'm not going to lie, but the fact that we are starting to, you know, make a little bit of progress in terms of like getting people to think in a more common sense way, that is... That is a good sign, although I feel like progress isn't happening fast enough. The Internet is the greatest like democratization of information ever. You know, it puts so much at our fingertips to like correct our ideas. And instead, we end up drifting off to the most inane websites, you know, like any monkey you can put up a website (laughs) and people just pass around the, the craziest stuff. So it's basically given a lot of really terrible conspiracies new life. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's just I'm I'm apparently part of like this uh, I don't know Jewish Bolshevik conspiracy to destroy America <laughs> or whatever like they, they they've got. I mean, just- it, it, it's crazy stuff. It is, it is. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you brought up that point about the internet because I, I've made this point before too that like we as human beings for the first time ever have access to seemingly, you know, an infinite amount of information at our fingertips with our phones. But what do we do? We go find our little like niche conspiratorial communities and we just like find other people who think right. about crazy things like us. It, it's frustrating. Uh, but in, in terms of like what you would do uh, if you get elected to Congress, I have a question that's super broad, but I always like to ask this um, of people running for Congress because there's no real playbook that's been written. Uh, first of all, how have you been able to adapt campaigning, you know, from a pre-COVID world into a, a mid-COVID world? And second of all, what do you think it would take to actually stop the spread of COVID-19? Because a lot of people, I think, rightfully expect us to deal with this for at least another year, if not multiple years. So how do you adapt right now as, you know, someone who's campaigning? And then when you actually get to Congress, what do we actually do that would stop COVID-19, put this behind us? Because it took, I believe, three years for uh, the world to get over the Spanish flu, um, give or take. So, you know, are we looking at that type of a situation? I know this is super difficult for you to gauge, but like, I'm just curious as a lawmaker, what you think you can do to accelerate, you know, uh, the mitigation of the spread of this virus? Honestly, that is by far the easier part of the question. Um, This is not rocket science. This is not difficult. Countries all around the world have dealt with this. I mean, Taiwan had what? Less than half a dozen people die. South Korea, a um, little over 300. I mean, even places that spiked massively, like like Italy, shot way up and then plateaued and fell. 
and we continue to get worse and worse without really ever reining this in. And a good part of the reason is that we did not act quickly enough from the beginning, and decisions taken by the federal government forced the states to respond, often with blunt measures like full shutdowns. We could have dealt with this without ever having to shut down at all. But instead of acting for several months, the Trump administration was focused on denying that there was a problem. Instead, they should have ponied up a bunch of cash, given it to businesses to adapt their processes to do things safely, and then convince the public to wear their damn masks. If we had done that from the beginning, this would not have spread the way it was did. Masks, contact tracing, proper um, social distancing measures, that would have been all we needed to do. Instead, they let it spread wildly around the country, continue to deny it. Huge numbers of people still refuse to practice social distancing or mask wearing, including the president and his administration, which we've just seen has had some you know, um, uh, delayed consequences, but it finally did hit close to home for them. But it's just it's been deeply destructive to the country as a whole. I mean, we have almost a quarter of the world's deaths in the U.S. with, what, 4% of the population? It's just insane. This, is, this was mismanaged, and it was mismanaged at the federal level, and people are instead deflecting and blaming the states. So they want to attack the New, York, New York's government and California's government for, again, these blunt measures that were only forced on them by, by incompetence. And it's not just the Trump administration. I blame Congress for this, overwhelmingly. If Congress had gotten it together and uh, passed some kind of like, um, okay, think of the way a lot of these other countries did it. We gave more unemployment insurance and a one-time stimulus check. Well, that assumes a lot of people lose their jobs. If you lose your job, it's hard to get another one. Tons of those jobs will be automated away or replaced afterwards. Um, it creates all kinds of, of trickle-down costs for the businesses, for individuals. M most countries um, hit hard by this used wage subsidies. They, they simply paid for people to stay home or to work fewer hours. The government stepped up and provided that cash so the businesses weren't hurt. We let a bunch of businesses go out of business. We let millions of people lose their jobs. Both of those were completely preventable. And our incumbent is a good part of that. He likes to claim that he did something about it. He actually voted against the oversight and the spending that would have helped a bunch of small businesses. So he allowed a bunch of massive corporations and even mega churches to just rob the kitty and take that money that could have gone to mom-and-pop businesses in our district. Okay, so, man, this, this gets me really angry because 200,000 deaths and, like, the worst economic situation since the Great Depression was completely preventable. Um, our campaign adapted pretty quickly. Um, I, I have to say I'm, I'm grateful to have um, such a young and nimble campaign staff that we, we saw the situation. We shifted over to a digital infrastructure immediately and stopped doing in-person events. We started doing uh, weekly town halls um, uh, through, through Zoom and then live streaming them to every possible platform so that hundreds of people could watch them on whatever they had. Uh, we started a whole lot more aggressive uh, phone banking and text banking. Everyone in the district has heard from us in one way or another by now. People we don't have uh, um, phone numbers for, they get postcards or whatever, but we're calling, text banking, emailing, um, tons of advertising and, and social media, You know, uh, reaching out on radio, everything that we possibly can to get our message out to people even because we can't be out there knocking doors anymore or holding rallies. So you don't get to see that. But – they still they can't escape that we're, that we're here at least. If we'd had 
even a fraction of the cash that um, the incumbent sucks in from the military industrial complex, this would have been no contest. This this district is absolutely flippable, but it's hard to raise the money to compete with his television ads and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, people um, oftentimes they vote based on name recognition and who they know, which is why in right. you know these types of house races and even you know state house races. The person who wins oftentimes is the individual with the most cash, although a sign of hope for me at least is the fact that we are seeing a lot more success with these types of grassroots campaigns, especially in this election cycle with Qasem Rashid, you know, Jamal Bowman. Uh, and that is really encouraging because before it seemed as if like these behemoths in Congress, like there was no way you could defeat them. But now we're actually seeing, you know, they're not invincible. It just is a matter of doing the right things, uh, campaigning in the right way, reaching out to enough people to flip it. So here's the thing. Before we get to um, your pitch to viewers as to why they should definitely uh, donate and uh, help volunteer, I want to ask you a really big picture question that I've been thinking a lot about lately. And I don't necessarily believe that there's a right or wrong answer to it specifically, but like we really are at a strange time, a dark time in American politics where we're seeing, you know, polarization that hasn't been this bad since the Civil War. We're seeing climate catastrophe, you know, money in politics is a huge issue. We see one party that's, I mean, so fanatical and off the spectrum that I don't think they're redeemable, Republicans, of course. And then we see Democrats who are just kind of following them to the right. And there's been some gains. You know, we've shifted the Overton window a little bit back to the left with AOC and Bernie Sanders. But there's still a lot that needs to be done. And I feel like as a new member of Congress, you're going to have your work cut out for you. So I want to ask you, just in general, what is something that you think would actually solve all these problems like is it a one-size-fits-all solution is it just like getting rid of capitalism or is it like a series of reforms like the new deal like in your opinion what do you think would put us back on track because i don't know what the like the single answer to this is like i'm inclined to say you know if we reined in capitalism uh preferably abolished it in my opinion that would help but not necessarily immediately there's just there's a lot so i just kind of want to pick your brain about this because i feel like you have probably thought about this as well yeah and actually it's a it's a relatively complex um answer because it's a complex problem so i'm only going to like scratch the surface here right right but the uh the key thing is uh okay so you mentioned the, the question of like capitalism at all and um abolish capitalism honestly just isn't a thing that that we can really realistically do, but it can in the sense that we evolve toward these systems and we evolve mm -hmm. away from them. People forget that it took centuries for the current capitalist system to evolve. Yeah. A little bit at a time, incrementally, it built up into its current shape. Someone didn't just come up and say, I have invented capitalism. <laughs> the world economy changed. It's a very long-term process. And we are moving away from it a little bit at a time. And I think one of the things that might help is maybe a bit of a paradigm shift if we start thinking a little bit differently here because a lot of the terminology that we use, uh, especially when people throw around terms like capitalism and socialism, and of course, you know, Calvert is calling me, ah, radical socialist, whatever. <laughs> I, I don't use these terms, uh, really either of them, to think about the way I want to look at the economy because it's basically getting stuck in a 19th century argument that doesn't really fit where we're going. We are um, on the cusp, we, we're, we're actively engaged in another industrial revolution right now. 
and it is going to be a much more dramatic one even than um, than the last ones. And and the industrial revolutions are what gave us the fight between capitalism and socialism. I mean, the massive abuses in the first industrialization period led directly to the creation of so many um, radical alternatives. But we're approaching a point where technologically, at least, we could have a post-scarcity society. Between um, automation and artificial intelligence and the biotech revolution and everything that's kind of come, um, coming along the way in this century, uh, we really should be working you know, 20-hour weeks at best already. And what frustrates me is that right-wing economists for two centuries kept saying that automation would keep decreasing the amount of number of hours we worked and improve our lives, and it hasn't. I mean, John Stuart Mill in the early 19th century, uh, John Maynard Keynes, middle of the 20th century, everyone's like, yeah, yeah, we're going to, the biggest problem is going to be the rise of a leisure economy of people just sitting around doing nothing. And instead, we're working 50, 60 hour weeks, you know, just to get by with tons of pointless BS jobs. And that's deliberate. We have to break that paradigm and get thinking about where we could go instead. Uh, Ultimately, a Star Trek future is possible, but... We have to change the way that we're thinking about this and stop playing out the old battles and falling into these old rhetorical traps. Yeah, so I like that. That'd be one thing that I'd, I'd like to point to, I guess, you know, in terms of like one thing that I could really do. So, new member of Congress, what would I do? I'm going to shake people up. I'm going to be one of those, I'm, I'm going to be the exact opposite of our current ghost representative. I'm going to be on the floor of the House making speeches and trying to show up on C SPAN. I'm going to be doing interviews in the media. I'm going to be pushing the conversation and getting us talking about the fundamental issues and what we need to do to address this stuff so that we can head into a future that's better for Americans instead of one where every generation does worse. I, I don't want to see us falling steadily into a banana republic. I mean, we're literally, I mean, uh, and this is one of the reasons that, like, well, especially on the left, like accelerationism bothers me. Mm -hmm. If we tune out from the system, if we don't get involved, if we're not voting and pushing back against these terrible candidates and getting better people in there, we will become an outright fascist dictatorship. The right in this country has already been thoroughly captured by the ideology of neo-fascism. It is what they're talking about. They're not conservatives anymore. They use the term conservative, but they're not. Almost no one in the Republican caucus in Congress is a conservative anymore. You know, the ones who were have been retiring steadily over the last 15 years. Uh, It has fundamentally changed. And because of that, if we are not paying attention, if we are not focused on the future, if we are not putting good people in, this will become a dictatorship. Yeah, yeah. And I always say that, you know, not every single democracy lives forever. You know, we may have always known democracy in the United States, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to always exist. And I really like that you said, you know, a paradigm shift is what's needed because I feel like we are on the cusp of a paradigm shift. Like the fact that we're talking about these types of left-wing ideas, even Medicare for All on national television in and of itself, I think is a signal that times are starting to change maybe just a little bit. And so, you know, it's not just a matter of we we pass a bill through Congress saying capitalism is abolished. Like it, it doesn't work that way. But I think that the way that you described it as, you know, almost like a pendulum where we swing back in the opposite direction, you know, because we've really moved away from the thinking that got us the New Deal. And, you know, back then, I'm sure that Americans felt the same way we feel right now before, you know, mm-hmm. the dam burst and the floodgates opened up and we got the New Deal. So I, I do feel like we are kind of on the verge 
of a paradigm shift. And I think that you saying that actually gives me hope in the fact that you'd be in Congress fighting for that, fighting for a better world. I mean, I'm sold. I'm sold. Anyone who's watching, I know is sold. So what can we do to get you elected to Congress? The election is coming up super fast. It's honestly scary. Um, so what can we do with less than a month away to make sure you beat him? I would say we have to overall, both right now and in general, be supporting campaigns like this one all across the country. You mentioned the New Deal. I mean, Democrats, populists, leftists used to be extremely popular all across this country. We used to dominate farm country. We've walked away from it because we don't talk about those issues anymore. It's not like they were any less socially conservative you know, back then than they are now. Same people. But they, but our issues resonated if we talk about them. I'm going to talk about issues that do matter to people. If we can amplify those messages, we could win all across this country. What could work in this district can work in Kansas and Nebraska. Um, so, yeah, I would uh, encourage anybody this this late in the game. There's not a whole lot left to do in terms of volunteering. Um, I mean, we already I mean, tons of people have been making calls and texts forever here. Um, so anything that you can do to support us, because every dollar that goes in goes into our advertising budget. You know, it gives it's more time that we can be on radio. It's more time that we can hit people with social media ads, and get that name recognition out there. And just one thing, I mean, it, it affects my race, but literally all of them. We have to get past this learned helplessness where you face someone who's got, oh, yeah, he can write a $100,000 check. I can't. So there's nothing I can do, right? If you've got five bucks, you can help. The price of a coffee a month given to progressive campaigns across this country, especially running in these swing districts, this is how we change the country. You put 200 squad members in there and anything is possible. We can we can reorient this entire country and this economy and catch up to the rest of the rich world. It just drives me nuts that we're in so in, in steady decline here. So yeah, my website is liamomera.org, uh, the most generically Irish name ever, L-I-A-M-O-M-A-R-A.org. Um, and then I'm super active on social media and whatnot, so it's pretty easy to find like donation links, more information on the, on the issues. If you want to reach out and contact us, you can absolutely do that. All right. Well, yeah, I'm fired up. I love that you use the word learned helplessness because that is something that I feel like I'm even guilty of at some times where, you know, there's a big race that comes up and we lose it. We being the left. And then I feel so deflated. And then you just kind of feel like, oh, well, the next one's going to be bad. And then we end up getting a victory, surprisingly. I, like, right. I, I love that. Like you are kind of like calling for a shift in the mindset of people on the left. And I think that's super important. Like, I, I agree we should never, ever accept accelerationism because as much as people are demoralized and they want to see, like, a revolution, we're a lot closer towards a fascist dictatorship than a socialist mm -hmm. revolution. So we need to keep oh, pushing yeah. for a better world. And candidates like you, like, you drive that point home, which is why, like, this is so important. So uh, I'm rooting for you. you you've got me sold. Uh, we'll be watching closely. Hope to have you back on when you are a member of Congress. That'd be awesome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, that's all that I've got for you. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've made it this far in the program, special thanks to my guest, Liam O'Mara. Um, as usual, we're not going to end the show without thanking all of our Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members for helping the show not just to survive, but thrive as well. And if you too would like to support the show and get access to some of our content a little bit earlier, you can do so by going to humanistreport.com slash support, patreon.com slash humanistreport, or by clicking join underneath any one of our YouTube videos. It is easy, and you can see our videos before they go live on the community tab of your YouTube page. It's really, um, I think, an easy way for me 
to just quickly throw up some extra content that you get to watch, you know, a day or two early. And, you know, it's a little bit of a thank you for helping to keep us afloat. So I appreciate you. Uh, but yeah, that's that's everything. I, uh, I'm going to bounce. I'll see you all next week. I hope you all have a wonderful weekend. I am Mike Figueredo. This has been The Humanist Report. Take care, everyone.